Hello and welcome to episode three of There's Always Another Podcast, the Halt and Catch Fire podcast of the Real World Podcasting Network. I am your host, Kevin Ford. With me, as always, is the other host, Jerome Cusan. And today, we'll be talking the penultimate season of Halt and Catch Fire, season three. Jerome, how are you today? Did you just say penultimate instead of penultimate? That wasn't intentional. I mean, it's better than saying Philadelphia, but, you know. We got a million things to delve into. Season two is heavy, and I feel like this episode is going to be even heavier. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and part of the reason that it's heavier is because Joe has a beard now, so that makes it automatically heavier because he's got all the weight of his luscious hair. Very much kind of fitting into that, like, tech savant leader type, the the Steve Jobs type, I think, of that era, I think, is defined by that sort of, like, relaxed look and facial hair as part of that look. Yeah, I think we get Joe has fully transitioned from Don Draper to Steve Jobs at this point. And Absolutely. Yeah, that's somehow he, he's I think he's a more pleasant human being than Steve Jobs at least. I would I would think so. He has like he's like wearing the he's like walking barefoot in the sweatpants, but you know they're like sweatpants that probably cost like five hundred dollars. So Oh yes. It is what it is. In nineteen eighty six money. Yeah, that's whew, that's that's a significant amount, but hey, he has that money to to throw around. So let's start. Let's start like we did with uh, with season two. We're going to go episode by episode. And as a reminder, season two ended with Mutiny moving all their operations to the San Francisco Bay Area. And Joe McMillan is meeting them there with his new business ventures. So episode one, Valley of the Heart's Delight. We are in California and the year is 1986. And if you remember, uh, one of the things that got them to California, Mutiny, that is, is that there was a mainframe they could purchase fix up and become fully independent. And that is what Gordon has now successfully done. And mutiny is also celebrating having over a hundred thousand users. And Boz is also now a grandfather. Lots of big changes for mutiny. They also have now their own office space. They're not running out of a home anymore. So mutiny is doing great. It is thriving right now in California. Yeah. I like the fact that we are starting off with this, with this group thriving because I think the last couple seasons we've had to witness a lot of disappointment and uh, failure from some of the companies and the ventures that the various characters have been a part of. But now here at the beginning of season three, there is uh, there's some success, but we are, we are also going to be transitioning into dealing with some of the, the challenges as I think for a lot of companies, there becomes an issue when uh, you become too, you're, you're too big to be small and too small to be big. And I think as Donna puts so eloquently throughout the season, that is one of the big concerns that they have is when is the right time to become a bigger company? When is it the right time to stay a smaller company? So th- these are the kind of issues that we are dealing with. And this third season, I mean, if you just look at everything that happens, there is a lot that happens. I mean, we have a significant time jump that we're going to get into. We have new characters that we're going to be discussing. There's just, there is a lot that happens in season three and every episode, it feels like there is so much going on. And I like that because it sometimes feels basically there is like 15 minutes of episode in 55 minutes. That is not the case here. Each episode is about 45 minutes and they justified that 45 minutes because every scene has a purpose. And I really appreciate that. Um, because that's that's kind of the way TV should be, I think. If you're going to invest your time in these episodes, especially week to week like this, I think this is this is the kind of pacing that I really appreciate. 
I agree with that. And I also don't think it's overstuffed and nor does it feel like overwhelming. I do think the time jump kind of feels that way when we get to it. But I think for now, each episode feels like it, it. I never feel confused or lost or whatever. It feels like a really strong narrative, but also everything has a purpose. No wasted scenes. A lot of stuff going on, which is which is a compliment considering how many narrative threads there are to follow, too, even if they do intersect a lot of the times. But right now we have there. It's still pretty new in California that they've established themselves. So Cameron is actually living with the Clark family. Uh, we see more differences in the daughters, as we had kind of discussed between Joni and Haley. Joni is getting into fights at school. Haley's a little more meek and mild. Like there's this they experience this earthquake and she's a bit more sensitive about it than Joni is. And Joni uh, did get in a fight at school, and one of the parents has to go in for the meeting. And Gordon and Donna both go in, and they end up meeting Diane, the mother of the other daughter. Uh, and Gordon, at this point, is telling Donna that you know, once we can assure the mainframe is up and running and working as intended, he's considering pursuing other opportunities, which is interesting for him to say because, as you may remember from last season, one of the contingencies for him and Donna kind of – working to make to stay together and make things work after his affair was for him to move to California and work at mutiny. So maybe he feels like he's kind of held up his end of the bargain. He wants to be more independent at that time, but Donna just tells him he wants him to be happy, but you can tell this kind of took her aback. It certainly did. And you see a lot of the tension that is rising between uh, Donna and Gordon. And I think the dynamics from the first season are so fascinating, and even the second season, because I think in season two, and even in season one, I think we are much more on Donna's side of things, and we can kind of see her point of view a lot more. But I think there is going to be, I think there's a huge shift in uh, kind of our allegiances and almost to the protagonist is because I think Gordon becomes actually the much more, the character that we are rooting for much more in this season, because I think he is, he is trying to embrace and atone for his past sins. He is the one that talks to Joni about kind of committing to the new home. And I think that that's something that's really admirable. And I really like that the writers took it in this direction to where Gordon is the one uh, that is atoning for his own sins and taking responsibility because it's not something that you see on a lot of these quote unquote, great men dramas. And also as part of this, you mentioned Diane. And I just want to say that we, we had a lot of critiques about the Sarah character and some of it was performance. Some of it was writing clearly Christopher Cantwell and Christopher Rogers who took over and are the showrunners for seasons three and four as the creators. They clearly, they either, they either acknowledge that Sarah was a problem or they, they just figured out how to cast better because Diane, I get, I got more from Diane in her first exchange with Donna than I ever did with Sarah and any of the interactions that she had with the other characters. I don't know how you feel about it, but Diane felt like a very strong character with a distinct personality from Donna right from the start. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, when I saw her, I was like, I know this face. Who is this? This actress is Annabeth Gish. And I looked her up and the only thing I can ever remember seeing in that rang a bell was she played Ben Wyatt's sister in Parks and Recreation for a episode. But I've watched that show so many times that I was like, I know her. And that's exactly where it was from. But it's definitely a very different character. And Diane is a breath of fresh air and a really great addition to the cast. And I really like 
all the direction she takes because you see her as being a great businesswoman, but you also get to see her personal side as well. So, yes, great addition to the cast. Really great 180 from the Sarah character in season two, for sure. And she is not the only new character as we get a new employee of Community named Ryan, played by, I'm sorry if I mess this up, Manish Dayal. Uh, And he has a proposal for Community because they've discovered Cameron and Donna have this big empty space inside a community. And this opens up a lot of options for what do we do with it. Ryan's proposal is to rebuild the private chat feature because they're apparently open to hacking uh, and so he has this like really overwhelming presentation of how to make it more secure. But Cameron and Donna are just like, ah, oh, we're going to decline this. And Cameron actually has Bosworth raise his salary. But Ryan is really unhappy still because Cameron didn't mention his ideas to Bosworth who mentioned the pay bump. So he feels like he's just being paid to shut up. Um, and so, yeah, this this is really the beginning of of Ryan's character in the show and you kind of see like a little bit of what Cameron was when she was working with Joe and Gordon in season one, where you feel like you're the smartest person in the room. You feel like you're above kind of your coworkers and what you're dealing with. And it can be it, it can be frustrating to feel that way at work, uh, albeit there's definitely some immaturity in, in it as well. Yeah, I think that the way the show positions Ryan is that he is almost like uh, this combination of Cameron and Gordon in a way, because that those are kind of the skill sets that he employs, but he is also a very kind of eager person and he wants to make his mark, so to speak. And he just, he doesn't have necessarily the patience and he also doesn't necessarily have a lot of the, the social skills that it takes to really be successful in an environment like this. And I know that Cameron is not always the most sociable person, but I think Cameron is one of those people where I think a lot of it is a facade. And once you actually sit down and get to know her, I think you can actually develop a good relationship with Cameron. Whereas Ryan seems so hyper-focused on the work that I think he's, he can be very difficult to engage with. And I think that is that is how the show portrays him over the course of, of this season. And I think that I, I, I really like the Ryan arc in in the big picture, but I think individually, I think there there's definitely some ups and downs as far as his character and as far as some of the scenes go. Because at this point, you know, I I am very much engaged with what is happening at Mutiny, and it feels like any time we are not at Mutiny, I just want to be at Mutiny again because mm-hmm. I think the, I think the dynamic between because you have Cameron, Donna, Boz, and Gordon all in the same place. And I think that is where the show is at its most interesting because, once again, Joe is kind of separated from the rest of the cast. And clearly that is by design, but I think it, it, it makes for kind of an unusual experience because just – I mean in season two it was kind of like this, but in season three it is even more pronounced because Gordon is actually working at Mutiny. And you basically have four of the five main characters in the same place, and anytime we go to Joe – it's got to have to be its own thing. It's got to be it's kind of its own plot line and him doing his own thing uh, with with eventually Ryan and Matthew Lillard's mustache. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that where you're just like, well, all of most of our main players are at this one place. Why are we spending so much time on this Joe guy? What's what's he doing over here? He seems fine. 
So yeah, but they do rectify that situation a little bit, but it does, it does take some time getting used to. Um, and I do think there are some episodes with Ryan and Joe where there's like the key scene where some idea germinates or something big happens. And the rest of the scenes are a little bit fillerish, just conversations between them. But that's, that's, that's just like a minor critique. It never felt like overbearing or a waste of time. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's very much how I felt as well. One thing that Ryan does bring them is a bunch of printouts of private chats and a couple things happen. Don is reading through them and Cameron has this in real life exchange that turns awkward with a gentleman at a coffee shop where she's trading for an Atari because she accidentally mentioned something about knowing his son who passed, which was taking place in a private chat. But what they come to discover is a lot of people are using this private chat feature to swap items. And so they think, what if we take all this empty space inside of community and create this online marketplace, like an online swap meet, so to speak, which is pretty ahead of its time to, to in the, the mid-80s to make a place where people can make trades and stuff online. I mean, that's obviously huge now, especially we're, we're still in the pandemic era as we're recording this where collectibles and stuff of and online shopping is through the roof. But it's it's so fun to watch during this time and see like them germinating this idea of an online sw- a swap meet, and it's like, oh, you do not realize how great of an idea this is. I love some of the exchanges as they get into like what, some of the things that are being traded, and I'm sure we can get into that as well. But yeah, I mean, I think that we we are just in a very interesting place because it's part eBay, part Amazon, part Craigslist, and this is the kind of thing where. It's, it's going to happen when you have a group of people. You're going to have – I mean it's capitalism at its best and worst in a lot of cases because this is this is kind of how communities germinate by not just exchanging information but in some cases exchanging goods as well. We learn Gordon is suing Joe for stealing his antivirus software and building his empire off of it. And then in the next scene, Joe calls Bosworth very briefly to congratulate him on the grandchild and hang up and – if you remember in season two, Boz left working for a son to come to meet me. So you're kind of wondering what that relationship is like. And he makes a phone call to pay phone at dinner and you realize he hasn't talked to his son a little bit, never even seen his grandson, doesn't even know what his name is. But fortunately, when he gets back to the office, he has a voicemail from his son who informs him that the name of his grandson is Samuel John. So his middle name is honoring Mr. John and Bosworth, which I thought was very touching, very heartwarming to see that. Him and his son are at least still on on speaking terms and uh, realizing, you know, there's there's more to life than maybe this is one hiccup and honoring him with his name is something that'll stick forever. For sure, I mean, I think that's what you want. You want your name to live on, and uh, Boz is definitely the the type of character who we are meant to sympathize with, and in some cases, I think he is he's a, a, almost the most sympathetic character because of the things that he has gone through and the way that he seems to mentor uh, some of the other characters, especially Cameron. But I think to an extent he does it with Donna as well, where he is kind of having this mentoring, nurturing relationship. And I think part of it might be that maybe his son is jealous that he has this relationship with the others and maybe doesn't necessarily have the time or the relationship with him. I mean, that's something that, the show can't necessarily explore because there's all this other material to get to. 
But you certainly get hints of that. And maybe there is a little bit of jealousy on the son's part to where that that's why their relationship is fragmented. And in a way, Boz did choose mutiny over over whatever's going on in Texas. So uh, that's also something to, to consider as well. And we do get hints more tension as the season goes on too. Absolutely. And I think the other question coming into this for me is like, what is Bosworth to mutiny? Is he the spokesperson? Is he the ambassador? Is he the salesman? What is John Bosworth to mutiny? I think that's something that he's even trying to to figure out. Uh, is he an advisor? Like what, what is Bosworth's role in mutiny as he's kind of entering like the second half of act of his life, so to speak, leaving Texas, coming to California and staying on the mutiny ride with all of these people. I mean, I think he's kind of a consultant and advisor, and he does play. He does do something really important for the company in in a future episode with some negotiations and also interacting with Diane as well. And I think that's what kind of his role is. I think he's kind of a consultant advisor for the company, and I think he does. The, the nice thing is, is that they do actually have him play an important role in the company at times. And it's not like he's just there to advise Cameron or advise Donna, that they, that he actually does play a role in helping Mutiny out. Absolutely. Yeah, he's definitely important to the company, but I think he doesn't really necessarily have a title or anything. You know, he was more or less uh, uh, an advisor in season two and kind of taking ad hoc roles like when he does the the sales pitch and things like that. But that, that was just sort of so I was wondering coming into the season. One thing I did really like about this season, too, is seeing Gordon's relationship with the programmers, because even though he's running the mainframe and, of course, married to Donna and he's kind of there, maybe maybe against his will is a bit strong, but he is a little bit against his will. Really, he's very much like them. He understands their position. He's really like a programmer at heart. Uh, so like things like the GIF versus GIF conversation, him using a homemade bong that one of the programmers make, uh, and that loosens him up to t- talk about what his experience is with Joe McMillan and why he's suing. And then him coming home and seeing Donna and Cameron and just being high as fuck is really funny. So this is something I, uh, just a part of the season I enjoyed was Gordon's interaction with the programmers. Something that I, I, I think is underrated about this series is that Gordon and Donna can both get high and it's not like this is a very special episode about how they have a drug problem. Like it's okay. They're using marijuana casually. Cocaine is bad, but using marijuana (laughs) is not a big deal. And I really like that. We see both Gordon and Donna. It's not not just Gordon kind of being the bad boy. Donna also likes to get high as well. I don't know why. I just, I really like that about the show that even though Donna is kind of trying to be a more straight laced businesswoman, she's like, there's a comes a point when she literally asks a group of, I think, either high school or college students if they have weed, basically. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with just destigmatization. We talked about this on uh, Flooping the Pig or Adventure Time podcast when they had uh, Princess Bubblegum and Marceline have a relationship. Like they kiss on screen and have a relationship at the end of the season or series, rather. It's a big deal because of those characters, but you almost feel like it's not a big deal because of it being a, a same-sex couple, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of the point. Eventually, if you see it enough times, it just becomes normalized. So, yes, I think seeing them just casually use we to unwind or increase sexual pleasure or things like that is big for destigmatization, and it is nice to see it take place here. And it's not like a big conversation or it doesn't fuck up their life. It's just something they do casually in their life to unwind or enhance something, and it's great. 
And then the last scene of this episode is Joe. He's at this movie theater and he's presenting his new Are You Safe campaign. We learn Macmillan Utility is his company. It's the, quote, gold standard of corporate antivirus software. But he announces that he is releasing a consumer version of his antivirus software, which is known as Citadel, free of charge. And in the amongst the audience is Ryan watching in awe of Joe. Uh, so he is uh, captured by the allure of jo- Joe McMillan, something we've seen other characters be in previous seasons. And uh, doesn't always go great. But I'm sure it will turn out great for Ryan. Hey, I don't know about that. I mean, it'll turn out great for the ground at the bottom of his apartment, but I'm not sure if it turns out great for for Ryan necessarily. This is where we get Joe as Steve Jobs. I feel like this is peak Joe McMillan right here in his element, kind of selling uh, this company. And basically, he does not appear for quite a while in this episode, and we really only hear his voice. Uh, talking to Boz, but then we get to the end, and it's it's basically Joe McMillan in rare form, just talking up uh, the company and being his Steve Jobsy best. And I think it's an important scene to have because you really need to understand that Ryan is a member of the audience and that Ryan is in awe of Joe. That is really important, and that regardless of what Gordon and the other people are saying, we really have to believe that Ryan would become kind of sucked into the world of Joe. And I think that's what this scene accomplishes very well. I think the Joe stuff in general is much better. A part of that is because I think I think Ryan is a much more interesting character to bounce off of. But in this season, it feels like Joe actually has something more tangible that he's doing because he has this company that is his own and this this version this antivirus software. So I think this this the Joe stuff in this season is just much better. For sure, yeah, he doesn't have the weight of the relationship stuff holding him down. You kind of get to see the real Joe McMillan sort of come to fruition. Someone who stole software from his friend to build his own empire and puts on this facade to shareholders and the common people. And he's, he's got Ryan hook, line and sinker. That's for sure. And that ends episode one, episode two, one way or another, we have Donna and Cameron pitching mutiny exchange, the name of their online swap meet, hoping for $1.4 million. They get this dinner with a group they think are ready to take them on, but they get their offer undermined significantly. They're more or less called desperate. And one of them makes a comment about Donna's lipstick color that's very sexist. And it it goes to show, like we say, there's sexism isn't something that's like in your face for a lot of the show, but it does exist and it comes to a forefront here with Donna and Cameron there. And I think there's even a comment made um Perhaps by Boz, I think at some point, just like you're going to have some difficulties with people because you're two women running this company. And that's he's he's not saying that because he agrees, but it's just the reality of the situation. And sadly, it, it it's very ugly here in this at this dinner. This dinner is one of the more uncomfortable scenes to watch because I think the show does a really good job of not putting kind of the sexism angle at the forefront. But I think to not acknowledge it would actually be uh, dishonest. And I think that. If you're going to do it, then you do it in a scene like this where they're pitching kind of to outside people and you can kind of – you can collate a lot of the sexism kind of in this episode, in this one scene. So I'm actually glad that this scene exists even though it was not very comfortable to watch. I mean he basically implies that Donna put that lipstick for sexual purposes, perhaps even oral sex reasons, and it's just – it's repulsive and disgusting and – 
all of those things that you think about when you think about this kind of thing. Because I would love to say that we've moved past this, but it is very clear that even in 2021, something like this probably is happening as we speak. And that is, that's, that's really disgusting to think about, especially in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, with all these venture capitalists and hedge fund people. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that this garbage is still going on. So, I think it is important. It is important, not just for that, but to also put Cameron and Donna on the same side, because given where they end up, I think it's really important to have them kind of united in a way at the beginning of the season and on the same page, because it makes what happens at the end of the season all the more tragic and heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. It it goes to show their relationship is even if it's sort of like this creativity versus cash relationship they really do need each other and they're really good together and they really stick together in this situation and it's awful to watch really hard to digest but it's great to see that at least they have each other's backs and fortunately they get to meet with a female the next time of their meeting and it happens to be diane the mother of the daughter the which Joni got in a fight with there's also this gentleman named elias and during their pitch meeting elias passes diane a note and they quickly pass and cameron is obsessed with why they pass on them so quickly so much so that she bribes Joni 20 bucks to invite the daughter to her birthday party, hoping that Diane, who is a single mother, will drive her there so they can talk about it. And that's exactly what happens. And Diane reveals to them that there's a new company called Swap Meet that has beat them to their own idea by 18 months. Uh, and what I really like is there's a moment later where Gordon hears about this from Joni and then later pays Cameron back her $20 as this like I know and now you know I know move. And then later in the episode, Cameron and Donna go to Diane to propose, why don't we buy out Swap Meet? So instead, uh, buy your competition as opposed to losing to it. So they're making business moves, and it's just great to see that Mutiny has this little bit of power to be able to go to a firm and say, well, what if we did this? What if we made an acquisition and took everything under roof and we be the only Swap Meet people online? So all of this stuff, I think, with Swap Meet. And the online marketplace stuff was very interesting in this episode. Something that I really appreciated in as we go on in this episode is that it's actually Cameron that kind of takes the initiative and, and kind of uses some resourcefulness. I think we would typically see Donna do this, but I really like that it's Cameron this time because in a way what she is doing is like she's the one that's trying to figure out like why did they get rejected and then like she bribes – like what a what a what a bribe like twenty dollars and it could potentially like raise the family like millions of dollars like should Joni get a finder's fee in the end for this I mean what what she's what fourteen twenty bucks to a fourteen year old or however old she is ten something like that that's a lot of money to a little kid and in nineteen and again in nineteen eighty six money so that's like a hundred thousand dollars in twenty twenty one money right it's one banana what could it cost Michael ten dollars. <laughs> But yeah, I also love that Gordon pays Cameron back the $20, but doesn't actually tell Donna what she did, because I think Gordon actually gets it. Like, Gordon wasn't bri- – like, Cameron didn't bribe Joni because she wanted Joni and Jennifer to be friends. She was doing it to help the company. So I like the fact that Gordon – yes, it's kind of a power move, but it's also kind of a bonding moment between the two. That's how I read it, yes. especially because – in future episodes, we get to see Gordon and Cameron bond. And I really like the fact that those two kind of become friends in the end. And that when Gordon has to do what he does, 
Like it's actually a very powerful moment because they have built this relationship together. And it's something that is kind of implied that has happened over the course of the few months that we did not see them in California, but we also get to see it in future episodes. So I love the fact that Cameron and Gordon finally become friends. Yeah, I do too. And I think it's because like Cameron, I don't think can get as close to Donna the way she does to Gordon because there's just too much business stuff and entanglement in there where Gordon's just kind of a hanger on. He's free to do what he wants and he's able to speak his mind and, you know, he gives Cameron heads ups here and there. Ultimately, you know, he has to side with his wife, but they can just hang out, man. They can just play video games and drink sodas and have a great time. And it's, it's really no sweat off either, either one's back. So there's definitely a very distinct relationship with Cameron and Gordon versus Cameron and Donna. And I think that's great. I also love that it's Gordon and Donna that do drugs. And I think – so I think Cameron did have the one time when she did it, but Cameron is not the implied drug user. And I really like that because I think in a, in a more cliche series, I think Cameron would also be partaking. But oh, it's, totally. the older of the, it's the older couple that's actually doing it. Yeah, she she gets drunk on occasion like any old college kid or 20-something at that point would do. But yeah, nothing more salacious than that. Never like – fucks up their meetings and stuff really really work is her is her drug of choice it seems yes that's what she's addicted to she's addicted to competition kevin oh boy you know who else is addicted to competition joe mcmillan i don't know if that's true or not but ryan does approach him uh as joe is a uh, surfing under the golden gate bridge a nice hunky joe shirt off scene he gets brushed off and then ryan later gets nippy with boz during this programmers meeting which gordon says you know why don't you let me take it over since i Speak their language, and because he of his relationship with Donna, he's kind of bulletproof with those guys. And he's also willing to listen to some of Ryan's ideas. Ryan, though, is able to hack Joe's calendar and get a meeting with him. He pours his heart out to Joe about how he feels he isn't listened to and not reaching his full potential at Mutiny, and he needs to work with Joe in order to reach his full potential. So he's really pouring his heart and soul out to Joe, and Joe's not really giving him anything he kind of just tells him his time is up and uh joe's playing it cool but he's he's listening he's listening to everything that ryan is telling him and he's slowly di- digesting it. and i think that's a, a good move in power and just a good move in business is is you listen and digest you don't react and that is not at all what ryan is good at whatsoever absolutely not ryan does not have a lot of social skills and I think that's something that the show does not do as good of a job as I would have liked is Ryan is, uh, is very obviously – he is a person of color and you do not get a lot of people of color on the show with speaking roles. And I think the amount of non-white people speaking, it's, it's a pretty low percentage. I know that we got a little bit in season one uh, with one of Joe's exes, but that's that's really about it and – it feels like with Ryan, there's th- that maybe there's some of that there. I don't know because we really don't get an idea. But you know, Ryan is somebody who is a non-white person trying to function in in Silicon Valley, where Joe, Boz, Gordon, Cameron, Donna—these are all white people. And I wonder if that has any effect on his relationship to them and their relationship to him. So that, that's that's definitely something that. That I was pondering and thinking about as as I, I would watch some of these Ryan scenes because maybe you get the impression that he is kind of a scrappy underdog and that he, maybe he feels this this want and this pressure to constantly be fighting and to kind of scratch and claw and to live up to his full potential. Right. 
Uh, and I think Joe admires that, but he's still trying to decide what to do or what, what Ryan can do for him. And so he's just staying quiet and, and thinking. And with Joe, we have this lawsuit going on, and Gordon is giving another deposition in regards to it. And they're separate depositions. Like, Joe isn't in the room, but he does interrupt to offer Gordon 70% of McMillan Utility and to become a partner with him. And Gordon says he doesn't want to work with Joe, and Joe says, well, now we know what this lawsuit is really about. And later, Ryan goes to Joni's birthday party to talk with Gordon, which seems weird. He's not a dad. He's not bringing a kid or anything, but I digress. They end up talking shop, and Boz interrupts to present a robo-butler as a gift, and it sadly short-circuits and spills their beers. Funny moment. Uh, Boz trying to do the right thing, but it just doesn't work out. And Ryan does end up getting a job offer from Joe, and Joe says, I need you to do something for me. And what Ryan does is he goes to Gordon and tells him to his face, I'm going to work for Joe McMillan. And Gordon feels some sort of way, like he's having some sort of like hallucination or something, and he marks something in his notebook, which we don't know what that is for now. But literally, this leaves him reeling when Ryan tells him, I'm going to work for the guy you're suing. Uh, it, it is a pretty impactful punch to end the episode. Yeah, it's a great it's a great moment. And of course, we know that Gordon has his degenerative brain disorder, and it is important that we see him marking his notebook and kind of seeing some of the various symptoms that he has, but, but you mentioned the robo Butler, but we need to talk about the robo Butler more, Kevin, because this is really important stuff because, so there are, there, there are like three shows in, that took place in the 1980s that were produced in the last decade. Those being glow, the Americans, and of course, halt and catch fire. All three of those shows, Kevin Ford had robots. The Americans had a male robot that delivered the mail. Glow had the drug robots and Halt and Catch Fire had the robo butler. What makes it funny is that the one that is the most tech progressive and tech savvy is the one where the rob- robot failed in this case. I just, I, I just, I feel, feel that's really important to point out. But what about the robot from Rocky four? Uh, so Rocky four was actually produced in the 1980s. And, <laughs> right. And I feel like that movie and short circuit have an outsized influence on our pop culture because since then, every show that takes place in the 1980s has to have a robot of some sort. Although I don't think stranger things had a robot, which is really weird because you would think that show of all show would have some sort of robot, but it really didn't. Uh, so that's uh that's really fascinating to me. Also, Toby Huss was also on glow. True. He was. Uh, and who knows? Stranger Things, I have to imagine the season four is coming at some point, right? Or is it canceled? Uh, no, they, they are not canceling. They're, they're, they're not getting off that that tee. That's no, sure. not a chance. So give it time is what I'm trying to say. Episode three, flipping the switch. So Gordon's built his ham radio that he took from him from Texas, and he's not being able to pick up a signal, but we see like a some signals trying to get picked up before the show intro. And Donna asks Gordon to join the project meeting where she talks with Cameron and Bosworth over business decisions. And things get tense with Gordon and Donna, and Gordon loses cool because he thinks Donna is still unfairly holding his act of infidelity over his head. It didn't seem to me like that was happening at all. Gordon, however, he storms home anyway, chugs a beer as he's wont to do, and he hears the radio and begins attending to it. When Cameron comes home, he lets him know that Donna never said a word about his affair, and later on he apologizes to her for his behavior. So I thought this was kind of like an interesting thing to, to bring up. It seemed a little bit abrupt here to to bring it up in this meeting, but I guess they wanted to remind us that, oh, yeah, there's still this tension and this lingering thing from season two. 
And I'm glad they waited until episode three to actually bring it up. I'm glad that they kind of took their time with it and it just wasn't something that immediately got brought up in, in episode one. I think episode three feels like a good time to bring this back to the forefront because I think this is an important decision and I could definitely see something like this holding up a marriage or creating a lot of tension between Gordon and Donna. So I think it's something that they had to bring up at some point. And I think, again, I think we're kind of transitioning from from Gordon and Donna being the most important relationship to Cameron and Donna's relationship becoming the most important one. So I think addressing this early on in the season, it, it, is, it is important to understand their relationship, but also I think it is going to have an effect on Cameron and Donna's relationship ultimately as well because – we know where Gordon's loyalties lie, and we know that he still is obviously feeling still a lot of guilt over what happened for bringing it up in this meeting seemingly out of nowhere. And Cameron is also probably getting to know more about the Clark family than she ever would have wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say that's, that's definitely the case. One of the things that I'm always very curious about is we never get the we never get an idea of how much money Cameron is actually making out of this deal. Like she is working for Mutiny. Mutiny is obviously successful. She is one of the most important figures there. What is her like that's I was genuinely wondering like what is her salary? How much should she be like paying significant amounts of rent? Why is she just living in this house, in this one room? This is weird. Uh, well, I think I think they know that the 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 Clark family realized they're sort of entitled to her because it's her project and all this stuff. And hey, man, it's not what you it's not what you make; it's what you save. I guess so. And Cameron must be saving a hell of a lot of money just renting out this room. And do you really think she wants to go live alone somewhere? No, Cameron is a Cameron. Cameron is a walking contradiction. You remember yes. the line in Clerks when Randall talks about. Um, liking parties but hating people. Yes, that's not the exact line. I, that's 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 what Cameron is. She both simultaneously hates people but also can't stand being alone. Right. I think she she says she likes being alone, but you also want to be alone on your own terms. And I think that's where where Cameron is. And I think part of her working late is even if it's alone in her office, if there's a vibrant community going on outside, you feel a little bit less lonely. Can't really do that in a big house by yourself. No, you uh, you certainly can't. So Donna returns to the office after lunch and has papers for Bosworth about the acquisition of swap meet. And uh, as Bosworth was in that blow up with Gordon and her and uh, Bosworth tells Donna that, you know, working to reconcile with Gordon is going to be worth it. So once again, Bosworth continues to be a good judge of character, I think. Yeah. And this leads to probably one of my favorite scenes of the entire season, because we get our first interaction with Diane and Bosworth that obviously will be an important relationship moving forward. But I love the fact that there there is instant chemistry between the two, and they both immediately pick up what is happening at this meeting, and they both sort of figure it out right away. I this I, I really, really love this scene. And I think this, this is a very good episode on its own, but I think this scene in particular is one that has stuck with me just because you see the competence of both Diane and Boz in this moment, and it creates a great personal connection between the two. And that is what makes the show great, is when they are able to combine business acumen slash professional success with kind of the personal relationships. Right, because they they go to the swap meet offices to ink the deal, and they see that 
this this outfit is really just a couple dudes in really dimly lit offices. And it's like, what are we even acquiring here? We're obviously the much bigger company, even if they got here first. What are we really buying here? And they end up like Bosworth's skills are able to end up saving Diane's firm two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And Diane's really impressed by this, and uh, immediately they become the couple I root for first. Sorry, uh, Gordon and Donna. Yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see that, and I can understand why uh, you would decide to, to root for them, because they have just – they bring a similar kind of energy uh, to the table. And again, I, I just think Annabeth Gish is one of those performers who has been – like you mentioned with Parks and Rec, like he does a lot of one-offs in various television shows, small parts in movies. But here she gets a role that she really gets to sink her teeth into and gets a relationship that is meaningful on the show. And I could definitely see why anybody uh, would stand, or I guess the term is ship for these two. That's the term, right? I'd say you stand an individual, you would ship a, a hopeful couple. For sure. See, Kevin, this is this is how you're bringing me into the 21st century. Yeah, I'm I'm cool with the youths. Well, we see Ryan is really a fish out of water in this McMillan utility world. As he's like attending this costume party at Joe's house. Uh, later, Cameron comes to Ryan to try to talk him out of working for Joe and come back to mutiny, but Ryan doesn't accept. Cameron knows what it's like to work for Joe and knows it's not going to go well for Ryan, but that's that. And Ryan. You know, there's always this grass is greener thing, but it's not like he's that much happier with Joe right now because he's not being given clear cut work to do. Though later, Joe does pull him into this board meeting, which is led by Ken, who is played by Matthew Lillard, as you mentioned, or Matthew Lillard's mustache. And in that meeting, Ryan is surprised to hear they will be charging fourteen ninety five for the consumer version of Sidell instead of no charge, as Joe said in his presentation. And Joe keeps asking Ryan for his opinion, and we kind of know what's going on here. He's like begging for Ryan to say something, but Ryan just goes along with it, though privately he tells Joe he's not happy about charging. And Joe says, you know, sorry you couldn't keep up in the meeting. Uh, and Ryan says that Joe is abandoning his principles, and this really sticks with Joe because later he tells Ryan, all right, we're going to work with something out of my house. That's going to make up the revenue that we're going to lose because we're not going to be charging for Citadel anymore. So ultimately, Ryan and I guess Joe get what they want, but it's really a roller coaster ride for Ryan. He's he's really thrown to the fire of what this world of being in this this Silicon Valley company is like from this parties to board meetings to all this other stuff. So quite the whirlwind for this guy. And the impression that I get is this is still kind of what Silicon Valley is like, except everybody has a cell phone and there's probably different kinds of drugs than the ones that were at this particular party. So I think it's very much a culture shift for Ryan and kind of going from, I don't want to say the kids table, but that's kind of what it feels like because all they're doing at mutiny is marijuana seemingly like if there's any cocaine usage, it's very under the radar. And here it's just like all the drugs you want. And it's uh, it's it's quite an adjustment, and Joe is still trying to figure Ryan out as well. And uh, it's it's really it's really interesting stuff because you're Ryan is kind of our POV character in a lot of those scenes, and just getting to explore this world. I just really like the fact that we are getting to see kind of a POV from kind of this outsider character because. I think that's the thing we did not necessarily get a lot with Sarah in season two is we did not get a lot of her POV. And in this season we are getting, even though Ryan is not as quote unquote important as Joe or Donna or Gordon, we are getting to see 
kind of his point of view on things and see kind of how he sees Joe. And I think it makes Joe a better character too, because I, I think that there's, I, it's, it's tough to not have Joe at arm's length just because he could be so, he could be such a dick sometimes and he could be, just this the very towering figure that could be hard to relate to and i think that's the thing that ryan is doing he's kind of bridging that gap significantly and that's why i think he's such an important character in season three something i find really interesting is even though joe is successful he has this chip on his shoulder because for so often we saw in season two he's being called a fraud and uh, putting on a front and all this other stuff but he's trying to combat that because now he's a student at San Francisco City College to really learn some of this tech stuff on his own. So he can't just be a corporate figurehead. He can be someone who really knows what he's talking about. But at this time, Cameron, I imagine for being a successful entrepreneur in the area is now a guest lecturer at a class. And outside we see Cameron and in, in, uh, being confronted by Joe for the first time where he's thanking her for tearing him down so he can rebuild. And he's Trying, he's coming off as genuine all this stuff, but Cameron says she still is not buying this like Zen persona that that he's trying to put on. There's just too much personal animosity, I think, between them. Too much history between them for her to really buy anything past what she sees as the real Joe. But I do find it's interesting that even though Joe is successful monetarily, thought well of amongst the community, deep down inside he maybe feels like he is a fraud and he's trying to prove himself, and that's why he's going back to doing these classes. Uh, at this time. Can you imagine having Joe McMillan as a student? What is Joe McMillan like as a student? God, that's got to be the worst. <laughs> well, you you would know what it's – maybe you would or wouldn't know what it's like to have these type of students in your class because of just, just the differences of teaching and stuff. But I'd have to imagine as a professor, especially if you would know who Joe McMillan is, it's got to be a little bit intimidating. And you also have to raise an eyebrow like, wait, what? why are you here? And it's a city college, too, which makes it all the more – like this isn't even a university. And I, I love community colleges, but in this dynamic, I mean presumably the person that is teaching him is not as high up on the food chain in the academic ladder. So it's it's got to be a really strange feeling to have Joe McMillan in your classroom and to have to interact with him. I mean I would assume that Joe's not a complete dick because he's very clearly trying to – like, Joe McMillan is a very nice person when he wants something from you, and he's very clear about what he wants, so he's probably not a dick, but, man, that's got to be weird. Very weird. And uh, this doesn't end the episode, but it's close to the end of the episode, and it's Gordon back in the boardroom agreeing he's going to be a little more – less less confrontational, I guess we should say. And they decide they're not going to replace Ryan, that Cameron's just going to be one of his original coders, but – Gordon kind of has to speak up because he feels like he's now putting too many irons in the fire. And we get like this nice argument amongst our four key players uh, in mutiny talking to each other and kind of fades out from the boardroom. It's like this, oh, you kind of moment, but a really great representation of the company, I think, uh, and, and how these four players interact. Yeah, this is one of the rare times that you actually end on an like it feels like you're ending in the middle of a scene. And I really appreciate that because that's not something that they do a lot. So I think just to change it up, I think it worked out really well. And I think, again, I think here you're seeing uh, the transition of Gordon from kind of a main player to more of a supporting player in a way because he is the, – the, the, we are – the relationship between Donna and Cameron is just coming so much more – to the forefront and the fact that Gordon talks about Cameron specifically and what she's doing and the fact that it's going to be too much for her 
Like, that really is going to matter in future episodes because we do see Cameron kind of overwhelmed with work and investing so much of herself in this company that it is going to – it's going to do a lot of damage to her personally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the burnout is real. The loss of the – of of the image of mutiny is real, and we see that all fester up in the in the forthcoming episodes. And our next episode is Rules of Honorable Play. And we learn that Gordon's notebook is to record any symptoms he feels and their level of severity on a scale of one to ten. Uh as he's trying to break up this fracas with programmers, he gets punched in the side of the head. This poor guy. Uh but later at home he's playing Duck Hunt on the NES. Uh I'm a Nintendo kid at heart. I've, I still play my Nintendo Switch. I've gotten all the systems since then. So all this stuff with Duck Hunt and Mario is going to bring up a lot of great feelings for me watching all this stuff. Uh, but as he's playing Duck Hunt, Cameron makes some comment and realizes that maybe a good way for him and the programmers to uh, have a bonding activity would be to go to play some laser tag. And they do this in an arcade called Honorable Play, which is why the name of the episode gets what it is. And in this, you get this hilarious slow-mo scene set to Goodnight Saigon by Billy Joel with them charging the opposition. And it ends up getting Gordon kicked out of the game. But I also love you see him very, you know, he's smiling at the snack bar, enjoying a drink as he writes nausea with zero next to it. Very proudly. Uh, Boz also shows up and Gordon comments about how Boz has sort of softened up and he means as a compliment, but I feel like Boz seems to take us the opposite uh, and then later at home, Cameron notices Gordon's hand shaking as he passes in the duck hunt gun. And again, Gordon's kind of kept his illness a secret from her from this time. So she's wondering, like, what is up with that? Uh, I know it's a lot to take in, but Gordon, this episode, I love so much of this. And I love that he got just like a nice moment at the snack bar where he's satisfied with uh, a successful hang with the programmers. He's feeling good physically, all this stuff like. Things are going really good for Gordon until that end where his hand's shaking a little bit playing Duck Hunt. But uh, one of my favorite parts of this episode, for sure. Well, I think Gordon's handshaking means a lot more to Cameron than it does to me, than it means to Gordon. I'm not saying that it's good, but the impression that you get is that Gordon has kind of gotten used to the symptoms by this point. So I think that's that's something that's important to think about. Um, Duck Hunt has always been one of the more frustrating games that that I played, and of course Cameron is really good at it. Like, of course Cameron, of all people, is just good at shooting people with a gun, especially after we saw uh, the scene where they were in the um, in the shooting range. So it just it makes perfect sense. And is this the episode where Gordon almost drops the f bomb before the credits roll? Yes, that is that is the greatest smash cut to the credits ever. It's pretty awesome, and hey, and, and, I don't blame if I get punched in the ear by a programmer errantly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna swear too. And I believe she's the only female programmer amongst them. Yes. Yeah, they don't really <laughs> Which make makes it all the funnier. Yeah, they don't make much note of it, but yeah, she's she's just there, and they don't really. It's well, it's another thing, and they don't really like kind of make mention much of her just being like the only girl amongst them. But she is, and it it is really funny just to see her stand out as she punches Gordon in the side of the head. So uh, something else. Is, Something else I was thinking about, is it really easy to use Billy Joel songs in movies and TV shows? You, I thought of you when you said this because you had mentioned in the year 2020, he gets a song played in The Boys and a bunch of other really big shows and multiple stuff like that. Multiple songs so. in The Boys, like multiple songs on two of the most popular streaming shows of the year because 
It's the boys. There are multiple songs that get used in in, in the crown. It's Uptown Girl, uh, the scene where Princess Diana dances for Prince Charles. And there's a genuinely hilarious scene uh, in the crown where the queen calls him Billy Joel. And all I could think to myself was, Billy Joel is not cool now. If he was, if he was cool back then, like, man, the queen is old. Well, hey, like, I'm a huge Billy Joel fan because my dad plays piano recreationally, so I grew up on Billy Joel and Elton John. So I love Billy Joel. I love hearing his songs and this stuff. And it fits. It's the 80s. It's the time. Is the boy set in the 80s? It is not. Okay. So that I can't explain. But the Queen stuff, you know, if that's if that's taking place in the 80s, early 90s or whatever, then it, it, it fits. And I just have to imagine either – his royalty fees aren't terribly large or they're super large and people just love Billy Joel. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he's got some bangers. That's for sure. So with Joe and Ryan, they're brainstorming ideas at Joe's house. And later we see that Diana's planned to ask Bosworth to be your plus one to a charity dinner, which is really covering up her horniness as a business opportunity for quote, John, as she calls him. And Joe says hello to Diane and Boz at this charity event. Uh, and later, Joe in a meeting with Matthew Lillard's mustache cost McMillan Utility a contract with General Atomics, which accounts for 37% of their revenue because he was so off-put by this representative's blatant misogyny and homophobia during the meeting, especially the homophobia. Uh, They realize they're going to lose this contract, and so he immediately gives Ryan access to ARPANET telling him to map their network before they revoke Joe's clearance. So I think this is a little bit important to see that this homophobia bothers Joe so much. And uh, I think it's both that and also I think the comment about Ryan saying that he when he was about to charge for the home version of Citadel that he's sort of losing his morals or losing his principles. I think that's lingering with him. And so he's sticking to his principles and morals here with this in this scene. The one thing I will say is that I, I find it so fascinating that that the homophobia is this distinct third rail for Joe. Like if you make a homophobic comment, Joe wants nothing to do with it. Back in season one, we did not talk about the scene in the strip club because I think the scene sucks and it's probably one of my least favorites. So I'm glad we didn't really discuss it, but it was the same principle there that basically Joe has an intolerance for homophobia and it's because of his bisexuality. And very clearly it is something that he is, that he hides from a lot of people Cameron is probably one of the few that actually knows about his bisexuality, and I think it's 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 an important point to bring up because it it plays an it plays a factor in what happens a little bit later on in the season. But uh, Joe and Ryan are quite a pair, and they are quite an interesting duo, just because Ryan is so different personality wise from Joe. The, there is such a difference between Gordon and Ryan. Gordon will stand up to Joe. Ryan doesn't really do that, and when he does, it's like when an eight-year-old stands up to their parents. Yeah, you just don't buy him as being imposing or having any say or authority over anything. He's just really – Joe holds all the cards in this situation, and it shows, and Ryan's just sort of this hanger-on. But he at least has enough of a a sharp tongue to really stick with – stick in Joe's mind, especially, like I said, with the principles and whatnot. So then we have Diane who pops into mutiny and she's witnessing Cameron and the swap meet guys having an argument about whose code to use when integrating swap meet. And Donna decides that all of them should have dinner to talk things out. Before that, though, Doug calls Cameron a man-hating bitch as she's working late. So off to a great start with this incorporation. 
And to make matters worse, Cameron gets a call from her stepfather saying that her and her mom are moving to Miami. So if you want anything of your dad's, you got to come to the house and get it yourself. Uh, and then that night she has a chat with Craig, who's also working late. And she admits to Craig that she doesn't want to change code because it feels like she'd be losing her connection to the original mutiny. And it convinces Craig that, you know, we should leave the code alone then and also talks her into going to Texas to get her dad's motorcycle. And the next day he says that based on the conversation with Cameron, he's influenced our own project. And so you're kind of seeing like this differentiating relationship in Cormor- with between Cameron and the two swap meet guys. But integration is not going well. And you get this, this again, this conversation of Cameron talking about how she's missing that original connection to mutiny that she, when she originally built it. So the impression that I get, at least based on the scene with Craig and Cameron is that Craig seems to have an idea of what he's doing, that he is a, at the very least a competent programmer of some sort. And the impression that I get is that Doug is kind of a hanger on because of what he says to Cameron and the fact that he does not seem to be embracing any of what's going on uh, with this new merger. So I don't know about you, but that's that's the impression that I got, that, that Craig seems to be a somewhat competent human being and Doug is just kind of a, a frat boy. You know, it's hard to say. It, it definitely seems like you have like a good cop, bad cop situation going on. I just mm-hmm. – I, you know, I think maybe one of them holds swap meet so dearly and doesn't really understand the integration thing. Like, well, well, that's Doug and Craig really understands it more as a partnership and like, hey, like she's basically our boss now. So we need to be beholden to her and sort of understand where she's coming from and really like she makes the call. So – I, I find Craig to be very genuine with her, uh, but I also think he understands like it's not in their best interest to get on Cameron's bad side. For sure. And I, I am glad that we at least got a scene with Craig and Cameron not fighting with each other. I really appreciate the fact that this show always tries to take the time to to have conflict, but to also have some sort of resolution as well among the characters that because I think that's realistic to life. I think there are always times when you are in a partnership with someone, business, personal or otherwise, where when you talk to someone, yes, there are going to be arguments, but there's also going to be times when you're not arguing and like it's late at night and you're just bullshitting around. Like I think that's those are things that just happen naturally, and I think and I think shows sometimes just fall into the trap of conflict, conflict, conflict. And I appreciate that this show kind of kind of gets away from that sometimes it isn't afraid to have the characters be vulnerable with each other in the proper context. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't I don't think it's natural to just have people fight all the time. Even if you don't like each other, you can still have cordial conversations or maybe a more lighthearted thing. Um, and I'm glad I mean, that you and I don't get along and we have like we're able to do this podcast once a month, even though we don't get along. Absolutely. Then we see later Cameron tells Donna that we're going to end up integrating Swap Meets code, but she also wants to fire Craig and Doug. And Donna tells Cameron that they can bring it up to Diane during dinner, which Cameron ends up no-showing. And Craig and Doug say they're willing to work with Cameron, but they're worried she can't work with them. And then alone, Donna brings up Cameron's wish to fire them to Diane, and Diane says, you know, I wouldn't be happy if you dismissed them, but if the situation is untenable, you have my blessing. But Donna returns to the office to find that Cameron is passed out from exhaustion at her desk. And she lies to Cameron, tells her that Diane gave a firm no to firing Craig and Doug and that they just have to find a way to make it work. And at home, Donna's kind of feeling guilty about this and tells Cameron that she can stay with them as long as she wants and she can take her time finding a home. 
And Cameron kind of has like something click in her head as she's walking from the fridge back to Gordon at the television. And she asks Gordon, when did you know you were losing Cardiff? So something about Donna, this conversation, whatever clicks in her head that mutiny is slipping through her fingers. Yeah, it definitely does feel like it's starting to slip through her fingers. Years and we don't see how Gordon answers that question, which I think would have been a really fascinating kind of hindsight as 2020. But the, the important thing is that we hear the question, then we see her shooting the screen uh, with the duck hunt gun. So that's that's kind of how the episode ends. But the bottom line is that, yes, Cameron – should Cameron have gone to dinner? Absolutely. Should Donna have lied? Absolutely not. You never – should lie to your business partner to, to steal a pro wrestling turn. This uh, this kind of felt like a Donna heel turn. I don't know about you, but Donna is definitely going uh, to the dark side against Cameron. At least that's how it's starting to feel. And again, I don't think Cameron is perfect, and I don't think that Cameron is without blame. But for Donna to lie like that feels like she is crossing a certain threshold. Yes, I agree with you. There's definitely an element to Donna that I find myself disliking by the end of the season. And it's starting to come up here. And I think what it kind of comes down to is I think she feels like she's the responsible parent in this relationship and that she can mask a lot of her decisions as, well, they're the best thing for the company. I know best. I'm acting the most responsible. So if someone like Cameron's not going to show up to the dinners, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. And if Donna feels that having Craig and um, Doug part of the company is the best choice and it means lying to her about Diane, so be it. How is she going to find out? You know, Again, not making it right, but it's one of those things where if, if you don't like it, you can still see where Donna's coming from. And there's a lot of justifications to her actions, but it certainly doesn't make me like her anymore. And I think you see at the end of the end of the season, like, is it great to be successful and have nobody around you to to enjoy that success with? Who's to say? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 last image of the of the final episode is very powerful because of who isn't in it, and um, you know, we'll get to that. But I just, I really like the tension that it sets up because now we have a ticking time bomb in that when are when is Cameron going to find out that Donna lied? Because we know it's going to happen. I'm actually, I'm almost surprised that they did it in the next episode because I thought this is something they might drag out. I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they kind of got it over with and just made it a key component of why they would eventually break up. But I really like the fact that you end this episode on this big cliffhanger and then the next episode, it's just kind of hanging over the entire episode. So in the next episode, which is episode five, Yerba Buena, it is the 4th of July weekend. You don't get many acknowledgments of like holidays outside of you know, your big Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas and episodes, but it's, it's very important. I guess that's 4th of July weekend here. Now you and I both work in higher education. How much did you love the line tenure track slapdicks in this episode? Man, I don't know whether to be offended, to be honored or what, but somebody on the writing staff must not like tenure track or must be a bitter professor who didn't get a job as a tenure track professor. I guess so. Only, only term or adjunct positions for this guy. Apparently so. So one of the things that they discovered was this NSF net, which is something that they discovered while hacking into ARPANET. And Joe wants Ryan to dig deeper into this. So someone comes by Joe's house, another male, who Ryan later sees embracing as they say goodbye because he showed up to work on the 4th of July like a real bootlicker. And in the evening, Joe and Ryan are talking about San Francisco being this metaphor 
Josie San Francisco burning down and being built back up as it being disposable, while Ryan sees as being like a fresh start. Uh, so when things fail, it's fine. You can start over, and it's really exciting because you don't know what's next. And Joe frankly tells Ryan that he's not sure he has another next in him. And the next morning, Ryan sees Joe crying in his bedroom, and later Joe gets a call giving him results for an HIV test. While we don't hear the result, he smiles with great relief as he looks over his balcony. Uh, I'm There is a part of me that's glad they acknowledge the HIV stuff, especially with Joe being sexually active with male partners in the San Francisco area. But I do think that having both male leads being sick would have been a bit much. Uh, what did you think of all this? I totally agree. I think having Joe get HIV would have been way too much, and I think it would have done a real disservice to the show. And quite frankly, at this point, I think it would have taken away from the Cameron Donna relationship, which again, I think is the most important relationship in the series by this point, especially by the middle of season three. This is the most important relationship. So I think giving both of the male leads a disease, a terminal disease essentially, uh, would have been very dark and it would have it would have made for a very unpleasant experience. I think when Joe and Ryan both talk about San Francisco, I think they're actually they're actually both correct in their assessments because I think in a lot of ways the way San Francisco is now, based on what I read and hear about, is that a lot of the town does feel disposable because of just what Silicon Valley has done to it. And I think Ryan is correct in that you know, people do get a chance to start over in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, because of all the venture capitalists and all the hedge funds. And whether that's good or not, that's up for you to decide. But it's definitely uh, capitalism at its best and worst. The one critique I do have about the Joe angle. So we get season two, we get Joe in a relationship with a partner of the opposite sex and Sarah. While we do see him hugging a partner, we see him making eyes with a partner in a previous episode. The one thing I don't like is that we don't really get a sense of Joe's romantic relationships with same-sex partners. And I wish that we had gotten a little bit of that because, again, I know that the focus is not on his personal relationships, but it almost felt unequal and it felt a little weird that we didn't really get to know who his romantic partner was in this particular situation and that he was just a means to an end of him having to get an HIV test. So I think that's actually something that struck me as unfortunate is that we did not get to know uh, who Joe's uh, same-sex partner was. I think it would have enhanced his character. And again, even though same-sex relationships are being done on television a lot more, it doesn't feel like they're, be st- they're still not being done enough. And especially when it comes to male same-sex relationships, I really think that that's still something that does not get addressed well enough. If, if there are movies and TV shows about uh, queer characters, they do tend to predominantly uh, be female. That's the only thing that I would have liked to have seen is to have a little bit more depth to uh, Joe's relationship to this partner. So later, Joe strips down Ryan's map to the empty space inside of NSFNet where they can build a regional network. So if and when that space gets opened up for commercial use, they have infrastructure ready to go. So this is what they're going to work on, presumably in the hopes of making the money that gets lost from Citadel being uh, public domain to everybody. So uh, over at Mutiny, based on people 
buying items through swap meet as opposed to actually doing swapping, Donna thinks they should add a component to add credit card transactions. Cameron is kind of overwhelmed that too much is changing and she declines it then, but says, I got to head to my parents. Let's table this conversation until I return home. And Bosworth also goes with her so we can go see his grandson for the first time. That doesn't go great because his son is mad. Bosworth built the crib that he purchased for them instead of letting him do it. And he doesn't really like that his dad is trying to rewrite their history. So he's got a really great relationship with his daughter-in-law, but it seems like his son is still harboring some resentment for Boz not being there, not being there enough, what have you, from his childhood. So it's weird. Boz is a good old boy from Texas, but he relates so much better to women than men. Have you, you've noticed that, I assume, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he definitely – I mean he, he doesn't have a poor relationship with Gordon or anything, but it seems like his strongest relationships are with Cameron. He knows how to talk to Donna. He does great with Diane and now with his daughter-in-law. So that's – it's really fascinating to me that this good old boy from Texas is able to talk so much better to women than to men. I just think that's a really interesting that's a really interesting characteristic that I don't think you see in a lot of shows because I think when you have an old man like this, he's talking about, oh, they should be making sandwiches in the kitchen or bullshit like that. But the reality is is that like Boz and I think this is what makes Boz such a great character, is the fact that he does relate to these female characters so much better. And like he's able to put on a good dog and pony show when he's in his element too, and the way he handles the meetings, uh, Boz is awesome. He is, he is a great character. I don't know if he's my favorite character, but man, he's this, this third season is really great for him. He's definitely one of the highlights of it. I think I really enjoyed everything Boz did in this season. He's, he's so great, man. Like I didn't know what to expect from them seeing in season one, but I'm so glad he stuck around and become such an integral part of the team. Uh, yeah, Toby Huss is uh, is a very is a very underrated actor. He's able to do so much, and uh, he's he's so great. This I think this is a role that he really just gets to sink his teeth into. I've seen him like he was in Glow. He's on this uh, Apple show called Dickinson, playing Emily Dickinson's father, and it's it's just not the same man. He gets so much more to do his boss, and he gets to really be in his element in this character. So really appreciate it, Kevin, is what I'm telling you. Okay, I'm going to. I'm going to continue doing so. Gordon and Donna had planned to go camping on their own, but decide instead to have a staycation as their kids are being taken care of and Cameron is gone. They have a really great time. They're dancing to The Clash. They tell each other they love one another. They fuck twice. They get high and have drinks. It's a damn fine Fourth of July weekend, if I do say so myself. But while Donna is high... She makes a comment about being glad their camping trip didn't go as planned because she never has enjoyed camping with Gordon. And this upsets Gordon, not because she dislikes camping, because it's yet another thing she hasn't been open about. And I think Gordon is talking about all these times they really connected and stuff on these camping trips and to find that Don never liked them. Uh, it does hurt him. And I can understand where he's coming from. Like I, I personally hate camping and think it sucks. But the fact that this thing that he thought were like these really great intimate trips with his wife to find out she's hated all this times, it's got to got to hurt a little bit, right? I would say so. And the favorite. So I'm going to jump ahead a few episodes just because I don't know if we're going to be able to mention this in context. But I love the fact that in his dating video, he specifically mentions that he loves camping. <laughs> yep, sure does. So I, I love that it also comes back and it like it is a feature of his character and not just something that he's bringing up this one time. And again, I think we are seeing Donna like Donna is becoming a character that is that is increasingly hard to root for because. Yes, again, Gordon did a lot of things that were wrong. 
along in the first two seasons, but he is also very clearly trying to atone for what he has done, and he has very clearly put a lot of effort into potentially going camping and then adjusting on the fly when they have this staycation. Like, they dance together. You mentioned they get high together. Like, they make coitus. Uh, they have drinks. Like, they're they're having a really good time. And, again, I love the fact that they are husband and wife, and even though they do have their problems, that, that, like, they're still able to get it up for one another. Like, that's something that I don't think we see on a lot of shows, and it's almost become a trope, but I really appreciate that. And what I don't appreciate is Donna saying that she didn't enjoy camping. It was just kind of pretending to enjoy camping. And, I mean, just be honest. Like, look – I have told like like when you're in a when you're in a relationship like you can I I would just just say that you don't like something and just be like well I'm gonna do it anyway like I don't like going to IKEA but if my partner wants to go to IKEA I'll be like I'll suck it up and do it once in a while because that's what you do you but you can be get, honest about it you can also get some good meatballs or cinnamon rolls there at least more so the meatballs than the uh, cinnamon rolls I'm not a big cinnamon roll guy. How dare you? The I do podcast like cinnamon is canceled. Once in a while. <laughs> Gene, Gene is going to be very upset. I do like cinnamon once in a while, but I'm not a big cinnamon not a big cinnamon guy. Cinnamon is like a once a year maximum kind of treat. Yeah, because it's like five thousand calories. It's too indul- it's just too indulgent to have on a regular basis. Absolutely, and who goes to malls anyway? Anyway, yeah, seriously, <laughs> especially now. One thing Cameron does in in Texas, in addition to going to get the motorcycle or whatever, is she catches up with Tom. It's really awkward. She also then later visits the old mutiny house where she's drinking a flask by herself on the roof with fireworks going off behind her because it is the 4th of July. And she's so nervous to approach her mother as the yard sale is going on, even with Boz in the car trying to encourage her, that someone else buys the motorcycle from underneath her and rides off. And she yells at Boz saying that he isn't her dad no matter how much he acts like it. And she gets out of the car and begins walking, and somewhat surprisingly to me, Boz drives away, not even trying to convince her to get back in. So they kind of skipped over that cliche scene of, come on, get back in, whatever, and just Boz just goes goes out with her. Cameron goes to see Tom at his home, and Boz travels back to San Francisco without her. And something we don't see something happen with Cameron, but it's very much heavily intimated here at the end of the episode. So Cameron comes back to Texas, and it's not very successful at least at this time, lots of strife going on between her and Tom and her uh, being unable to see her, her mom face to face. Yeah. We got a lot of Cameron in this episode and some of the conflicts that she is feeling. And it intertwines nicely with Boz because I think Boz is sort of feeling like feeling like what is his role in his son's life and not feeling like a father. And then here you have Cameron blatantly yelling that he is not her father and I like the fact that we have two seasons of capital built up with these two that they, they we've never really seen them have a fight. Like he's definitely given her a stern talking to, but that hasn't really been an argument. It's more like a father telling her daughter like what should be going on. But this is an actual fight between the two, and it's something that's going to carry us over the next couple episodes. And create a lot of tension as Cameron is is isolating herself and, and making making some mistakes along the way, uh, given what is going to happen uh, in the next couple episodes. But I think that what Cameron really cares about is she cares about the work, and she seemingly cares a lot about Tom. And that's why she she makes the decisions that she does, because very clearly she does not want to be alone anymore. 
Uh, the decision to get married ultimately seems like a rash one, but it's one that is understandable given what she has gone through in this season where she is feeling increasingly isolated, feeling like she doesn't maybe have an identity as much. So it would make sense that she would make the decision to get together with Tom and get married. Uh, I also like that Cameron does find out about Diane and what Diane actually said, because it's one of those things. Clearly Donna did not think about the fact that, oh, Cameron would just call Diane on the phone. Clearly Donna thinks so little of Cameron that she didn't think she would do that. Well, you know, and I'll give Donna a little credit here because the the agreement was we'll talk about this. We'll talk about the credit card transaction thing when Cameron gets back Monday. She's not there Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. And so Donna just says, F it, integrate the, the credit card interface. That, of course, gets him into a big tiff when Cameron finally returns on that Friday with a solution to use bank routing numbers instead of credit cards to avoid transaction fees and hiring more personnel. So good business decision stuff, but – it's too late and they get into a big tiff over it and you know Cameron admits to being aloof and you know hey maybe disappearing wasn't the best thing blah 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 and they end up on good terms so much so that Cameron decides she needs to apologize to Diane and that's when she discovers uh-oh Donna lied to her about the Doug and Craig thing and that's when we find that she hides away in her bedroom and puts the the wedding uh ring on her finger what i think's really interesting here is and and it comes up in a scene later too with Joe and Cameron is she basically I feel kind of did the same thing Joe did in season two is she gets married to Tom as a little bit of an impulsive decision. And I think it's because it reminds her of her past. She's trying to anchor herself to that past, a piece of her that she thinks she's losing. And that's exactly what Joe was – what they were trying to tell us Joe was doing with Sarah is going back to someone he knew in the time before he was who he was, so he can kind of be reminded of the person he was. Here she's going back to the person that she met and was in love with during the original mutiny days because she feels like those are slipping away from him. That's at least sort of my interpretation of what's going on. I think that is a very astute observation, and given the Cameron and Joe, as much as they hate each other throughout the season, they are very similar personality-wise. I think that personality, those personalities get channeled in two different directions, but they are much more alike than I think either of them wants to admit. Well, 100%, and this is not a case of opposites attract. It's very similar people attract. Well, yeah, and what, in talking about the Donna thing, like I think Donna actually made the right call there because if you say you're going to talk about something on Monday and then they don't show up, like I certainly understand where Donna's coming from there in that specific situation. But the bigger story is that Cameron, you know, tries to have a hard talk. Like she does apologize and she acknowledges that she made a mistake. And the reality is, is that her business partner still did lie to her. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's. This isn't like a two wrongs make a right sort of situation, but I feel like even in the business world, it's like you have two people who have conflicting ideas. Well, one of them is there. One of them isn't. The one who's there gets the win. I mean that I that that to me is how it, it's it's that simple in that logic of just, well, she didn't show up. She's not here for days. We can't get in touch with her. So F it. We're going to go with uh, my my choice. So, yeah, I totally understand Donna's decision here, even if. Even if I don't agree with all the decisions he makes in this case, I, I can take your side. Cameron makes a much better decision in episode six by playing Super Mario Brothers with Gordon. Oh, yes, she does. I'm so excited to talk about that. Episode six is called And She Was. Music lesson here. We heard Talking Heads burning down the house a few episodes earlier. That's from their 1983 album, Speaking in Tongues. 
And She Was is the name of another Talking Head song from their album Little Creatures in 1985. And we don't hear the song again. It's it's uh, I think they did that last season, too, with a different. Oh, yeah. With the Clash. We don't hear a Clash song, but they name an episode after Clampdown. Anyways, Cameron ends up firing Doug and Craig, as she promised after hearing this call from Diane. As Swap Mute is fully integrated and they're no longer needed. And Diane shows up and talks with them. And she brings to them uh, that CompuServe has an acquisition offer to buy Mutiny for $20 million. That is a hefty chunk of change. And along this line, Diane also brings up the idea of Mutiny going public. And Diane can tell there's tension between Donna and Cameron and says they need to work it out before they can make any company decisions. So it's even obvious to her before we got this acquisition talk and now we're going to go public you guys need to work out whatever's between you before you make any decisions because the company needs to be on the same page before you go through with any of this stuff. So I, it is it is a very purposeful decision that they kind of pair off the rest of the episode where you get Cameron and Gordon, you get Donna kind of by herself, you get Boz with Diane, you get Ryan with Joe. I think that's very purposeful that, Di- that Donna is the one that is kind of alone in this scenario. Absolutely. To her credit, though, she probably does need some alone time away from everybody, which fortunately, Diana has a residence in Sonoma, a beautiful part of California that Donna heads up to for some alone time for a weekend. And Cameron and Gordon obsess over Super Mario Brothers, which I can relate to. I can also relate to them hating the water worlds in games that that is a trend that continues through to this day. And they also freak out when they find the warp zone in, in uh, I think it's the second level of season one, which is another uh, very relatable thing. And they commiserate again over Joe, kind of a, a, one of their shared things is is Joe McMillan, where Gordon tells Cameron that the lawsuit isn't even about money, just to have Joe admit to what he did, which comes important later. And as they're playing the game, Gordon passes out. And again, Cameron does not know about his neurological disorder and he breaks the TV in the process, but th- and that's bad. But what's good is they get to buy this sweet 50-inch projector system for the game. And he lies to Cameron saying, oh, you know, the fall is from low blood sugar. So later she says she doesn't buy it, and he comes clean about his disease. And later they beat the game. And Gordon also shows her his ham radio. And then later Cameron talks to Tom Community, who says he will be there soon. So I loved this Gordon and uh, Cameron bonding through the episode, finding out about his illness, playing Mario Brothers. Just great stuff here. And uh, again, the conversation they have about wanting credit from Joe becomes very pertinent to this episode and the rest of the season. I love this part so much. I think I could have watched the entire episode just watching them beat Super Mario Brothers. And I think that that is a testament to how good these two are together. And it's uh, it's just really great because you get not only a lot of bonding, but I think Gordon really gives a part of himself to Cameron when he tell when he tells her about the disease because really at this point to our understanding Donna is the only person that knows about it. I don't even think the daughters know about it at this point, do they? They never really make it clear if they've told the daughters. Like Joni very clearly knows about it in episode nine. Yes. But in episode six, I don't think they know. I, yeah, I don't know for sure. 
because I'm trying to remember if it gets brought up in like the shouting match with his brother in season two when Joni and and the other daughter are in the room or not. So yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. There's never a sit down scene where they're talking about it if there is. So yeah, we don't. And know I think sure. and that, I think that's the kind of thing that maybe you would wait until they're older to tell them about what he's going through because. Otherwise, it's 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 really weird. He's got a degenerative brain disorder, but you don't know what's going to happen on a day to day basis. So that's that's a little weird. And yeah, I, I I really I genuinely think this is some of the best stuff between Cameron and Gordon that we see in the entire series. And it's a great bonding moment. And remember when beating video games was a big deal, like beating a Super Mario Brothers. Like Kevin, do you do you remember beating the X Men arcade game for the first time? I do. Like, so many quarters were lost in that game when we beat it, but it was just an incredible moment of catharsis. I don't know if you get that when you beat a game like this anymore. Well, you know, the the Mario games and stuff are definitely have, have an endpoint at this point, but there are these open world games or whatever where it's almost like you finish when you decide. Or, or they just go on infinitum, which is another way to get money if with subscriptions or downloadable content and all this stuff, but... You know, we're perhaps we're old, but yeah, it's the old. Eh, they don't make games like they used to. Uh, arguably, they're a lot better now than then. But the 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 beauty is in the simplicity, if you ask me. Absolutely, like I know The Last of Us and and games like that. Like I know that they're really powerful, and they certainly have gotten a lot of attention over recent years for justifiable reasons. But I think there is an essence to beating an arcade game when you cannot save your progress, and you just have to like you got to beat the game. Like by oh, dude, that was the worst when you couldn't have save files on like Mario One and, and all that stuff back in the day. I mean, I don't know how anyone could ever beat Super Mario Three. That game seems impossible to beat. Well, I've beat it several times, so it's repetition. It's that and Super Mario World for the Super Nintendo are probably the games I've played the most in my lifetime. Well, Donna's alone time is crashed by Dan's daughter and her friends who snuck up for the weekend, but Donna decides, you know, if we keep things quiet, we can share the house together. Uh, things are going well. She's really connected with Diane's daughter, and she offers her harder drugs. I don't know, heroin or something. And Cameron decides to come up with Sonoma to talk to Donna. I guess I forgot that it was supposed to be like a retreat for them to kind of unwind and reconnect. But Cameron ditched on it. But she does come, and they reconcile as Donna lays in the grass, looking up at the sky, probably uh, really high. Uh, so that's nice that they can at least reconcile that kind of stuff for now. But Everything seems really tentative, like things are good until it's time for the next business decision and things get tense again, which is really no way to have a partnership. No, it's certainly not. And there's this uh, the very dreamlike quality uh, to that to that scene. And it's uh, it's it's a really fascinating thing because like there's a part of you that doesn't know, is this actually happening and even even after watching this a second time, I was still it was still a bit unclear to me uh, whether this whether this really happened because uh, she was uh, she was pretty stoned. But I uh, I really appreciated um, just them being able to to have that moment uh, together, and I think it uh, I think it worked out. Uh, again, this is a very Cameron heavy episode because of uh, of what happens later on. What is Diane doing while Donna's away and her and her daughter is there while she's with Bosworth, who's looking to expand his horizons, and he's attending an opera. And he and Diane run into each other, and they bail to have drinks together at a bar. They end up having sex in his car. Boz, uh, though, turns down a nightcap back at her house and uh, has regrets about that based on Diane's reaction. 
just like teenagers, Diana Boz here, having sex in the car and then him not being able to read signals. Yeah, I mean, Boz is very good with women, but apparently not sexually good with women because he doesn't realize what's going on there. But I, I'm glad that these two crazy kids are getting together, and it's that's pretty great. Yes, yes, as am I. I'm always happy when Boz is happy. Yeah, Boz being happy is a good thing. I also want to point out, again, the episode of Dickinson that I watched this week also had a Toby Huss character going to an opera. So it's just – it's really weird how that happened two different times. Like an opera of all things, it's just really strange. Yeah, of all things. But it, it is – Boz at an opera is like such a fish out of water moment. Oh, and I also, yes. I also love the bartender who just doesn't give a crap <laughs> at, this, at this opera. She's so old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I mean she's, she's like she's like a female Hans Molman. Yeah, pretty much. We talk about the credit thing with Gordon. So Cameron comes to Joe and tells tells him that he needs to give Gordon credit for the antivirus software. Joe barely doesn't even mention just saying, oh, we should celebrate us. He sees the wedding ring on her finger. And he says she felt happiness for a moment and gave the person closest to her the credit. And Cameron reiterates that he needs to give Gordon credit and leaves. So, yes, a, a, a dagger from, from Joe to Cameron about her marriage. But I don't think he's wrong. No, again, Joe and Cameron are much more similar than they want to admit. So when Joe makes this assessment of Cameron, he is very much he is very much correct. He's an asshole, but he is still very much correct about the situation and what Cameron is doing. And I think what you are doing is you are seeing these two uh, kind of coming back together a little bit. And it is uh, it's pretty rare. We did not get a lot of them in season two, and there's still very clearly a lot of tension, but. It's uh, it's this is the I think the second episode where they've had this uh, this very interesting interaction with one another and uh, it has quite the payoff. It does indeed. So when Donna does return from from Sonoma, speaking of Cameron, her and Gordon discover that her bedroom has been stripped bare and everything of hers is gone. Later, Cameron contacts Gordon over her new homemade CB radio that she made. And tells Gordon that she got married to Tom back in Texas. Gordon says she's happy for her. And she has moved into a house that her and Donna were looking at in a previous episode. So I think it speaks volumes that Donna told Gordon and not – I'm sorry, that Cameron told – yes. That Cameron told Gordon and not Donna that she got married to Tom. For sure. That is a, that is a significant moment because, again, these two characters have been bonding and are becoming friends and – Donna and Cameron are not necessarily friends right now. Right. You think they've kind of reconciled at the end of the episode, but still she feels most comfortable telling Gordon, knowing that Gordon will tell Donna that she's married and communicates over the CB radio, which they bonded over. So again, love seeing more of Gordon and uh, Cameron's relationship being built up. Unfortunately, it seems her and Donna's is crumbling. I also like the fact that there is no romantic tension teased between Cameron and Gordon that it is strictly platonic they could have gone in that direction and it would it would have been a massive failure and it just wouldn't have been plausible I think I love the fact that it is a platonic relationship between the two and they don't they don't ever like you don't ever get the impression that they're gonna bone or anything of that sort and I think that's a good thing no, God, no. That would see, that would just be so awkward, like for everyone. The audience, both of them, 
bad times if that ever happened. And there's plenty of times where they were probably high together or drunk together where they could have intimated something, and I'm so glad they never did. Just me even thinking about it like really leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, I mean that's the delicate – this show is such a delicate balance, and nine times out of ten, I think they get it right. Well, here's something that Ryan and Joe didn't get right, and that's building their network and shopping it around without getting McMillan Utility on board with them. And Ken even tells Joe in a board meeting to slow down on the purchases and promises, but Joe says that's Ken's job to get everyone on their side. And they get a bid, and Ryan convinces Joe to celebrate. But before one of Joe's depositions about the lawsuit with him and Gordon, Ken confronts him alone, tells him that he learned from a fax that Joe has already been shopping around NSFNet behind their backs. And because of this, the board has voted to terminate the project and revoke all of Joe's executive authority. And this leaves Joe stuck because – if he quits, he has a four-year non-compete to commit to, and he also can't spend any of McMillan Utilities' money or launch another project or give any other orders without their approval if he stays there. And any infraction would also hurt any of his equity in the company. And so Joe, during the de- deposition, looks straight into the camera and admits that he stole Gordon Clark's antivirus software and everything the company was built on as Gordon's. So this is really the nuclear meltdown option that Joe has to take because of the position that Ken has put him in. And I love that. I love that it's all this coming together with Cameron coming to him and saying he needs to give Gordon credit. He's stuck. And so what do you do when you're stuck? You burn the sucker down. What a great ending to episode six. And what's the first of like three amazing endings to episodes? Yes. Three amazing endings. Uh, Joe loves to burn things down, apparently, because we've seen him do it figuratively and literally in some cases. And uh, what a great, what a great ending to the episode. And Matthew Lillard and his mustache, uh, they have oozed sleaze throughout this season. And you kind of get the payoff here with Ken just being the most sleazy guy in the world. And I think Matthew Lillard is kind of a punchline. But I I really appreciate what he does on this show and what he's done on other shows because I think he's gone from the guy who was in Scream to kind of being more of a character actor and the voice of Shaggy in a number of Scooby-Doo projects. But I I really like what Matthew Lillard here does because it's not a big part. We don't get a lot with him, but he very much – he's a great antagonist for Joe because Joe is kind of a dick, but – Ken is such a sleaze that you almost can't help but root for Joe. And I think that's that's almost what was needed in season two as well, because Joe really didn't have even someone worse to play off of. The fact that he does here, I think, makes the Joe stuff better. Definitely. Yeah, I, I really like the scenes with Matthew literally get like like you said, there aren't many, but they're really impactful. And he's he does such a great job in them. So episode seven, The Threshold. There's a lot of stuff with like Joe and Ryan and like just instructing work together. None of that really matters. What ultimately happens is that Ryan does end up getting fired. But when he's getting brought into a meeting with Ken, Gordon is exiting a meeting with Ken and Gordon tells Ryan that he was right and that what he and Joe were working on is going to be huge. And that does not sit great with Ryan as he feels like Joe is ousting him from his project to team up with Gordon which isn't what what's happening, but kind of is what's happening. Uh, so he's kind of experiencing what it's like to be with Joe McMillan here. Yeah, for sure. This episode, oh my God, there's so much <laughs> in this episode. And, and we'll talk about the Gordon and Ken stuff later, but I'm just putting this up top here. 
it's just there's so much that happens. And the Joe Ryan stuff almost feels like it's kind of shunted to the background, which is funny because the next episode, that's that's kind of the whole focus of of the story. And I mean here there's 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 a lot of back and forth about what's gonna happen here. But but Joe is very much a supporting player in this episode because I mean this is this has been building for the entire season. But we're going to get a, uh, a very important meeting, and uh, that's going to really kind of change uh, what the uh, show is about. Yeah, seriously. Um, and you get Gordon, of course. This is huge, the, this whole situation with him admitting with with Joe admitting that he stole the code, where he gets a copy of the tape where he sees it for himself, and his lawyer thinks that Gordon can get about $25 million for it. But he was watching this right before he, Donna, Cameron, and Tom, who's now in California, go to dinner to celebrate the marriage. And uh, obviously he is quite distracted as Gordon. And Tom says that, well, you know, I've decided not to work in Muni to preserve our marriage and obviously has to backtrack because Gordon and Donna are giving each other this look. Boy, would Tom not know how right he was. That Tom, he's a smart guy. I'll say that. He kind of. He's got a pretty good read and a good handle of situations, which makes kind of what happens in the last episode all the stranger because it's very clear that it's very clear that Tom is a, is a smart person, and it's like they wrote him to be so much dumber and in episode ten, but here he's uh, he's right on track. So Gordon goes to visit Joe, and he wants Joe to cut through the BS and say, "What is your angle with all this stuff?" And admitting that I. That that you stole my virus software and Joe tells him the whole story and he makes it clear to Gordon. You don't owe me anything, but I would like a finder's fee just because, you know, I built this empire. You turned down being my partner twice when I offered it to you. And when Gordon meets with Ken, he says he's willing to take 10 percent of the 25 million that his lawyer thinks he's going to maybe get. But he also wants all the equipment Joe has purchased and any of the deals surrounding NSFNet. But Ken's really concerned Gordon is just going to hand everything over to Joe. And Gordon remarks, well, what makes you think you're the only one in this room who wants to screw over Joe, Joe McMillan? But later, as Joe is showing Gordon his new software, Joe, Gordon offers Joe 49%. And Joe takes it and said it would be wisest if he was a silent partner and Gordon agrees. So even Ken has a, the right read on Gordon, but Gordon has to, to play coy during their meeting. Or do you think he was genuine and something changed? No, I think he's. I think he very clearly has an idea of what he wants to do. The fact that he offers Joe forty nine percent—that is a very specific number, For sure. especially in the context of what is going to happen, of what else happens in this episode. Because Gordon very clearly wants to retain ultimate control, which I don't blame him for. I mean, Gordon. Gordon has already been screwed by Joe multiple times, and uh, being voted out by a plurality does not sound like fun. And uh, that is what Gordon is trying to avoid. There's some machinations at times when I think it gets a little bogged down in numbers and like what's actually going on. But the bottom line is that Gordon and Joe apparently are going to be working together again. And that's ultimately kind of what this episode is trying to get across. Yep. And I think it's wise that it's very clear that Gordon's going to have the say even with that 51 percent of power. And uh, I think that's that, I think that's the wisest choice. So I think forty nine percent is very generous for Joe. So Ryan calls Joe, asking if it was his plan all along to shut him out of NSFNet. And Ryan hangs up when Joe is questioning why he's asking this question. And Ryan decides to release the source code for Citadel to the public. 
And later, Joe is, goes to Ryan to tell him about the news about being a partner with Gordon, but he gets cut off by Ryan excitedly telling him about releasing the Citadel, as well as telling the press that Joe only lost his job because he stuck to his morals. And Joe tells Ryan that what he did was illegal, but Ryan is overly confident about covering his track, and Joe just says, we'll see, and uh, leaves. And he has a key in his in his pocket, so I think maybe he was going to offer something to Ryan, a, a piece of the pie or whatever, but realizes that this kid's about to be in a lot of legal trouble. Yeah, I love that moment. It's a great camera shot when they just show him slowly putting the key away. Uh, that is that is fantastic stuff because you're really kind of seeing the Ryan and Joe stuff come to a head. And I think in some of the early episodes, you're just wondering, like, what's going to happen? And here you're really starting to see that pay off. And you're kind of seeing that Ryan, Ryan's in kind of a spiral at this point because he doesn't really have a job at this point. And he's done something that is very illegal, and he's in a lot of trouble, and Joe sees that. And I think Joe is also starting to realize that maybe he created a monster, too, that he created this monster in Ryan, and it's something that he's going to have to live with now because it's it's a really tough thing because Joe does such a good job of manipulating people and getting people to do what he wants. And here Ryan has literally done everything and has gone above and beyond. And now Ryan is in a deep spiral and Joe kind of has to live with the, the ramifications of that. I think Joe, I don't know. He, there's consequences to his actions, but he seems like things end up okay for him. And so there need, I guess he needs to experience something that there is no coming back from. Hint, hint. We're going to jump back to the restaurant where Donna, Cameron, and Gordon and, and Tom are having their dinner. And in the bathroom, Donna and Cameron have this discussion about going public. Cameron isn't totally opposed to it but needs some convincing. And the next day, she's super excited to present Donna a ton of notes about the possibilities for mutiny. But the issue becomes that she wants a couple of years to build everything before going public while Donna thinks they need to do so within the next three months. Uh, so there's that issue there. And then Boz brings Diane flowers with an apology, and she stays at the house because Donna later brings Cameron's mutiny's plans to Diane. And this is where she learns about her and Bosworth's relationship because he's still at the house. And during their discussion, Boz hears about Cameron's marriage for the very first time, which kind of hurts him. And Gordon later tells Donna that double-crossing Cameron could result in an all-out war. So here we're really getting a very serious business decision where Donna and Cameron are at odds, and uh, the split could is going to tear mutiny asunder as we'll see at the end of this episode here. I mean, there's just, there's so much to say about this entire situation. I, I don't, I almost don't even know where to start because well, do you want to, do you want to move on to the next thing and kind of save it for the end? Yeah, I, I think that might be for the best, but I, I just want to say that the one thing I do appreciate is the fact that you can kind of see both Donna and Cameron's perspective on this issue of going public, and I think that they are both making realistic arguments, but I think you're ultimately meant to side with one person, but I appreciate the fact that they're they're going out of their way to make both sides seem plausible. Yes, and I and you're really starting to see Cameron, like, the, the reality of her losing mutiny, it's slipping out of her fingers, is becoming more and more real, and it becomes more real during a party that Donna throws for Cameron and Tom about their marriage, that because this is where Gordon tells Cameron in private about Donna's plans to go public against her wishes, and he says, look, when they take it to a vote, I have to decide with Donna even if I agree with you. 
And this is when Cameron pulls Bosworth aside to ask for for his take on the matter. And this is when he admits Cameron that he's hurt, that she left him in the dark about her marriage. And he says, look, it's okay if you don't think of me as a father, but that won't make him not think of her as a daughter. And he encourages Cameron to find a way to work with Donna as they need each other. And Cameron finally tells Boz, hey, I got married, which I thought was really cute. Again, Bosworth trying to be the voice of reason, even in a situation where reason may not prevail. This might be the second or third best episode of the entire series, just because of there's there's so much personal animosity that's going on. And we have seen these people in so many different situations, and they've kind of built something together. And we've seen them built it together. And now it's it's seemingly all coming apart. And Cameron has kind of burned her bridge with Boz to an extent, as they're they're not necessarily in a good place. But Boz is also, I think, someone who is willing to be honest with Cameron. And I think that's the difference between Donna versus Boz and, and Gordon is Gordon Gordon at least stabs Cameron in the front. Gordon actually tells her like what is what is going to happen and he actually is honest with her and says why he has to vote with his wife. I mean he has to. It's it's one of those things where it it's not the reason for their divorce, but it might be the straw that broke the camel's back. And Boz has his reasons, you know. He needs financial security for himself and for his family. So it's understandable why he would make this choice. I think Diane is kind of agnostic, and even though Diana is on the quote-unquote wrong side, I think we as an audience understand why Diane is making the decision that she is making. But really, Cameron is the one, or Cameron is the one who is being betrayed by Donna. That Donna is is forcing the issue to an extent. Cameron kind of forces it within the episode, but in this specific case, it's Donna who is really trying to have them go public and she is now thinking fully with her business the business side of her brain and i even think the wardrobe decisions that they have made in season three where cameron is still very much dressing how she usually dresses but donna is dressing more like a business person i think there's that they made that choice for a reason and it's all building up to this episode which is not even the finale we still have three more episodes to discuss but this very easily could have been the finale and you would have felt some amount of satisfaction oh you would have and that's because of this final scene arguably the best scene in the series camera decides this needs to end now she pulls boz diane donna and gordon to the boardroom and says we're making a decision about going public or not tonight She's worried they'll lose the company's soul if they go public too soon and aren't able to make the changes she wants to keep the community vibrant and is also worried that once they do go public, they're going to be too beholden to stockholders that they won't be able to continue to innovate. Things escalate between her and Donna where we get personal attacks about impulsive decisions and their marriages. Boz chills them out and says he wants to end this meeting now, but he opens the door and Cameron slams it shut and says, nope, we're making a decision tonight. Donna and Cameron both throw out their way is not voted for that they will each quit. Gorin and Diane side with Donna, as one would expect, and Cameron gives a look to Boz, and he tells Cameron, you're breaking my goddamn heart, before he too raises hands. And Cameron's reaction to this, the way she breaks into tears, the noise she makes, as she has to face the programmers, then be let out by the door by Tom, is just the realization of a woman that the company she created is no longer hers. 
there's no way I could justify by putting into words like that, but this scene was unbelievable. I don't know if it's the best uh, scene in the show, but it certainly ranks uh, up there. I'll I'll come back to this conversation uh, when we talk about season four, but it is it is a very powerful scene because you have basically all of the main players of mutiny. You don't have Joe there, but you have all the main players of mutiny, and this is what the show has been building to over two seasons, basically. You know, a lot of the seeds got laid for this in season two. It has gotten more pronounced, and Donna's power has gained over the course of season three. And Cameron has slowly felt like she's been losing her company, and the she officially loses her company by the end of this episode. And I think she loses a part of herself at the end of this episode uh, because of what happened. And the thing that's so important to me is that, you know, we see where all the characters are coming from. But, like, at this point, if you're an audience member, I, I don't see how you can really like Donna or at this point. Like, Gordon and Boz, I think you see the perspective. Diane... I think you see her perspective and you can see why they're voting the way that they did, even if you don't agree with them. But Cameron, even though in this moment, Cameron is the one that forces the issue. The reality is that Don is the one that is ultimately forcing this issue. And we're almost in a reverse of where we were in season one, where I think in season one, Donna was the most rootable character. Now she is the least, even more so than Joe. Hers is the only vote that really feels personal. Again, like there would be no mutiny without Cameron. And now she doesn't even have an own say in her company. And and yes, she forced the issue, but it's because Donna really pushed the issue. And everything that's been going on has been Donna slowly being deceitful or making decisions behind her back or making decisions against Cameron's wishes. And now more or less it's become more Donna's company than it has Cameron's. And that really sucks. Yeah, it does suck, and I'm sure that this happens in companies all the time, but you don't usually – you're not seeing it play out before your eyes. In this case, you are seeing one of the co-founders get kicked out, and I'm sure, again, this is something that, that happens all the time, but that doesn't mean it's any more heartbreaking because we know the relationships that Cameron has formed with Gordon over this season, over Boz over three seasons, and over Donna with – over the especially seasons two and three right and like diane is just like she's too she's too new to the situation she she's really not make she's making business choices because she's a business person um and yeah and like you said like everybody it, it's really only donna to me that felt like a really personal attack against cameron by making this vote and then there's episode eight <laughs> episode eight you are not safe which jumps kind of all over the place in 1986 we get about like August, September of 86, where the FBI are investigating who released the Citadel source code as it was a violation of the CFAA, which is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And until the FBI puts this to the rest, the NSF net contract is frozen. Joe doesn't want to give it Brian, even though Gordon wants him to do so. We then jump to Halloween 1986, where Donna, Diane, and Boz are on the road doing press work leading up to Mutiny going public one night or at night. Uh, Donna calls home. She's homesick. She misses Gordon and the girls. 
Gordon's getting them ready to go trick-or-treating. Jeannie is going as Joan Montana, a female version of Joe Montana. And Gordon is, of course, dressed like Han Solo. And I think they even make a, a comment about, like, um, in episode one, once the mainframe is built, how, like, the Death Star is now operational. So lots of Star Wars jokes from Gordon here. Going back to season one, they're seeing Empire in theaters, and now uh, still he loves himself from Star Wars, like any true computer geek of the 80s, I suppose. What if the season – so we know the show likes to do time jumps. What if the season finale or the series finale is Gordon going to see episode one, coming out, and just being so disappointed? <laughs> just him like walking out of the theater speech, just like spiking his popcorn bucket on the ground. Oh man, that would be so fantastic! I don't care if we're repeating that joke. It's it's a good joke. Okay, because fair enough. I, I really do want to know what Gordon Clark would think of the uh, the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy. I don't know that we're ever going to find out. Unfortunately, you're you're breaking my heart. You're breaking my heart. Breaking my goddamn heart. Yep. Cameron is at her home, finds a hornet's nest outside, and she's giving out good and plenties for Halloween, which in my mind makes her the real monster of Halloween. So I just I, want to say, Cameron, finding a hornet's nest, not exactly subtle on the show. No, not exactly subtle at all. There's always the one house that gives out lame candy. Don't be that house. Don't be that house. Please don't be that house. Just give out just give out, you know, Snickers or Reese's. Play go with the go with the hits. Play the hits for people. Yeah, I mean this is this is the time when you don't you don't get creative, you just give out the candy and, and you move on. Exactly. Glad we're in agreement about this. Well, Joe comes to Cameron asking for her help to find Ryan. They're commiserating over their kind of similar lots in life with Cameron losing mutiny and Joe being ousted from McMillan Utility. And she's actually really surprised to hear Gordon is working with him. But Joe says that she was right in that he needed to give him credit for the stealing the antivirus software. And on Community, Cameron fields a general question. Joe McMillan, hero or hoax? I don't think we get to see the, the answer from the community there. Uh, we don't, but I think it's one of the most important questions of the show. Is Joe McMillan a hero or is he a hoax? It's like what the series has kind of been teasing out and trying to figure out for so long. But I think at this point, it's it's maybe it's maybe it's because I've seen the final two episodes a second time. But I think Joe legitimately is broken up about what's happened to Ryan. I don't think that he is faking it. I think he has realized in this moment that he has done something completely wrong and really messed up and that he is legitimately trying to atone for the things that he has done. And I think this is a very powerful and important moment for Joe. And it's something that I think can get lost a little bit because of everything else that is going on, which is why I think this episode focusing so much on Joe and Ryan is important because I think Joe has been so much off to the side for so long that I think it's very easy to think of Joe as being a stagnant character, but here I think we get some real, we get some real tender moments and some real come to Jesus thinking uh, by Joe. Yeah, um, and that continues when we jump ahead. But I'll just say I never take Joe's thoughts about Ryan to ever be disingenuous. So we do jump ahead to December eighteenth, nineteen eighty six, the eve of mutiny going public. Joe is over at the Clark House having some drinks with Gordon. He's still not heard from Ryan, and Gordon at this time reveals to Joe about his mental illness, which genuinely concerns Joe. Uh, and Gordon is interrupted by a phone call from Boz to come to Mutiny so he can help fix their servers. And Gordon and Boz have a little chat, and they toast to Mutiny going public. And so we have Cameron no longer in the company, and Donna's on the road, so it's a little bit of a boys' club back at Mutiny HQ. Yeah, I like that after all the tension that took place in Episode 7 – 
we get some different pairings in episode eight. And I think Joe comes back to the forefront. And this is a perfect time for him to do so because of what's going on out with Ryan and because things there's so much tension between Donna and Cameron and everything going on that I think reintroducing Joe seemingly reintroducing Joe into the main cast is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it was very important and it was good timing after after his absence from them in season two, more or less. Well Cameron does end up finding Ryan. He's in a library. He's been couch surfing, running from the FBI, and she finally convinces Ryan that he needs to go talk to Joe. And back home, she's showing Tom a new game she created called the Space Blade Chronicles. And Tom tells Cameron his job wants him to relocate to Tokyo, and Cameron excitedly agrees to relocate with him. There's really nothing left for her in California, so she may as well go to Tokyo. So I was actually in China when I was watching season three. So this was a very weird experience to have one of the characters now also considering going overseas to Asia, especially because it's Cameron, because from a personality standpoint, Cameron is probably the character that I most identify with. So it was just, it was a weird juxtaposition to be in China and, Oh, Cameron is going to be moving to Japan. I will say the thing I hated the most about this was I kept thinking to myself, but she just bought a house. Are you going to sublet? Are you going to flip it? Are you going to lose? And I thought, why am I even thinking about this, Kevin? It's a TV show. Calm down. I swear to God, I thought you were going to go, well, Cameron's going to get to see the early days of New Japan. (laughs) She can go to the Budokan and Korokin and Tokyo Dome, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, is she actually going to do that? I mean, that's that's important. Stuff. I mean, we're a few years away from all Japan women. You know, maybe she might be into that. I, I do. I can't see her going to a lot of rock concerts at the Budokan Hall for sure. Gordon wakes up the girls so they can watch Donna on Financial Watch AM, and she gives credit to Cameron Howe for creating Mutiny. So that's at least nice. Uh, and the host here is really like dumbing down what Donna is talking about with Mutiny and interrupting her a bunch. Maybe it's because of this appearance or other things, but the stock for Mutiny goes live, and it is not nearly as much as they expected. And uh, Donna panics. Really, everybody panics, but it's more quiet because there's less skin in the game for Gordon and uh, some others. But even Cameron is resisting really hard to look, and even Tom's like, would you like to know? And she kind of gives him a look, and he just kind of like shakes his head like, it's not good. Well, Cameron is kind of the one that pushed this, so the she's she's the one with the most skin in the game, I think. And you even mean Donna. though Donna, yes. Donna's the one with the most skin in the game because she's the one that really pushed for this. So I think it's very problematic that it's uh it's apparently not looking good and looking like it might not work out and yeah, I think it's it's important to kind of show what's what's going on and to see that uh mutiny is in some trouble. But then I, I will say that I know you're about to get into the Joe and Ryan scene, but this is genuinely, as far as a Joe scene, this might be my favorite Joe scene of the entire series because he comes off as being sincere. He doesn't come off like a dick. Like he is coming off like he is an actual human being. And this is what it feels like the show wants out of Joe. And it's finally coming to fruition in this scene. Absolutely. And let's talk about that scene. Ryan appears in Joe's home to which is what Cameron said he should do. And Joe tells Ryan that he has two options. He can either turn himself in, own up to what he did, or he can continue to run. Either way, Joe is going to help Ryan. If he runs, he's going to give him 50 grand, but the network they built will disappear, which Ryan does not want to happen. And if Ryan turns himself in, he won't serve more than a year or two. And Ryan doesn't want jail time either. Who does? Ryan really wants to hear from Joe that no matter what, you know, if I turn myself in, 
Will we be able to still work together? And Joe just says that's not possible. Ryan's really frustrated by this, calls Joe a hypocrite. And Joe says, why don't you sleep in my apartment tonight? We'll talk about this more the next day. And the next morning, Joe is awakened by the FBI at his door where he sees his back doors open and immediately realizes what happened. Ryan jumped to his death, left a confession titled, You Are Not Safe Behind. And Joe tells Gordon he cannot in good conscience profit from the network any longer and tells Gordon to finish it without him. I did not call this coming. I did not see Ryan committing suicide. I guess it makes sense because it's like if you don't want jail and you don't want to continue running forever and you can't live with this weight on your shoulders, what do you do? But boy, is this heartbreaking. And boy, does this basically rip Joe's world asunder. So I think in terms of the Joe character, it's it's really important and it's really well done because Joe is finally having to deal with the ramifications of the things that he has perpetrated in the past. And even though he's not going to go to jail, he has a crisis of conscience. And this is the first time that I think we truly see him have that crisis of conscience. I think it's unfortunate that Ryan, being one of the few characters of color on this show, ends up dead, and he ends up committing suicide. And it almost feels like, to an extent, that his suicide is meant to forward the Joe character. But it's also understandable, because he's in the main cast and has been uh, for the last two years. So I, I while I, I do love the scene, and I love what it does for the Joe character, I do also have those conflicting feelings as well. But I think that with the Ryan character... We learned so much about the show and who Joe is, and the suicide note is really, really haunting. I think it was haunting back in 2016, but I think reading this letter now in 2021, I think it's all the more prescient what Ryan says. Yes, and, I, and I've plucked out the last two paragraphs to read from it, but I'll talk about just the end of the episode is – uh, it's a montage where over it, one of the programmers is reading Ryan's suicide note. We see Boz in his office. Cameron runs in to Donna and the girls at the grocery store. She's like picking up snacks before they leave for Japan. And the girls run up and give her a big hug while Donna waves to her from afar. And Joe is walking along the San Francisco Bay looking out into the water, just processing everything that's gone on with, with Ryan. And this is the last two paragraphs of Ryan's note. The world is going to crack wide open. There is something on the horizon, a massive connectivity. The barriers between us will disappear and we're not ready. We'll hurt each other in new ways. We'll sell and be sold. We'll expose our most tender selves only to be mocked and destroyed. We'll be so vulnerable and we'll pay the price. We won't be able to pretend that we can protect ourselves anymore. It's a huge danger, a gigantic risk, but it's worth it. If only we can learn to take care of each other then this awesome, destructive new connection won't isolate us. It won't leave us in the end so totally alone. Obviously, I know this is being written in 2016 or whatever, but Ryan really saw what good and evils connecting us together on the internet could do. Everything about those final two paragraphs is accurate because, you know, the internet allows us to do this podcast. It allows people to maintain connections through a global pandemic and be able to function with their jobs. I mean, if it wasn't for the internet, we would not be able to do our jobs. And who knows what our lives would be like at this point. But it also 
does a lot of the some of the very worst things um, as far as you know conspiracy theory culture and you know toxic very toxic behavior that takes place online it runs the gambit it's there's a lot of positives there's a lot of negatives and I think that that note that ending note is so powerful and it is almost as if this is like the series finale, but this isn't even the season finale. This is the second straight episode that feels straight up like a finale, and we still have two episodes left. Well, and it feels almost like episodes 9 and 10 are almost an island unto themselves because they jump ahead from 1986 to 1990, and a lot has changed in this period of time. Donna has become a partner in Diane's venture capital firm. Uh, we see that she has some notes about Cameron and Joe on her notepad, although we don't know what their connection to them is at this time. And Bosworth comes and congratulates her on something before heading up to the vineyard with Diane. And we learn that Donna and Gordon have divorced. She's using her main name, Emerson, which is now on the name of the, the capital venture firm. And Gordon is dating somebody named Michelle. Uh, and he also owns the regional network that works through NSFNet. So we're kind of getting this catch-up thing, but – it's very it's it it sucks that Gordon and Donna didn't make it. I mean, I guess it's something we could see coming, uh, but it does make me worry about you know what about his disease? Who's going to be there to take care of him if he has a bad spill or something like that? So yeah, it just seems like Donna's really um, completely immersed herself into the business world and in, in into mutiny and uh, now this this venture capital firm. It's not that Gordon isn't Mr. – he's not Mr. Family Man, but you definitely get this idea that he's more connected to his daughters than than Donna is. And it's just such a sea change from where these characters were in season one versus now. I love the text message that you sent when you found out that uh, Gordon and Donna are divorced. You sent the Michael Scott gif of saying, nope, d- don't like it. That's pretty funny. It, it's sad. It, I, I was really rooting for them in, in season one. Like I told you at the end of episode eight, when she said she's going with them to uh, to, to Vegas, I, I pumped my fist. I was excited. It was like, great, they're back on the same page. And that's unfortunately not where they end up. And there's something you said about because I, I like we talk about how there's so much that's happening and in, in, in how far they come in season three. And part of me is like, well, yeah, they they cut off four years of exposition to do that. But you think there's a re a reasoning. They did that a very, like a real life reasoning for doing that. So again, I think the, the argument that I have made and will continue to make is that Donna and Cameron is actually the major relationship in the show now. And the fact that we see their break, we essentially see their breakup, but we don't see the Gordon Donna one. I think there's a reason for that. And I think it's because the Donna, Cameron relationship is at the forefront of the show now because I think it raises a lot of questions like why did they get divorced? When did they get divorced? How much of that meeting was the impetus for it? Did Donna ever tell Gordon about the abortion? Because we we never really find out in this season whether that whether she told him or not. Did that play a role in it? And you know, things were very clearly not going very well. And obviously there's there's a lot of reasons that they ultimately got divorced, I'm sure. But we don't really get the kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back to really find out. Well, and I think you also had mentioned that one of the reasons we, we jump from 86 to 1990 in the storytelling is 
the show just wasn't reaching that level of success where you thought they were going to have enough seasons to kind of tell all those stories. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's a really compelling season four that is Cameron in Japan, Joe processing his grief, and Donna and Gordon going through a divorce. And I think there's a really good television season that could be made out of that. But I think there's two problems with that season. Number one, shooting in Japan would probably be really prohibitively expensive. And number two, all the characters would basically be separated for all of that season. And you wouldn't get what makes the show work, and that's having as many of the characters in the same room as possible, as we will see in the next episode. So I think that's why you don't get that season. So I think it makes sense to jump four years, because when you consider where technology and where computers are going, next you have to get into the 1990s because now we have to talk about the internet the very thing that ryan warns against in his letter and you know what you just laid out that uh, hypothetical season four and that sounds like an incredibly depressing season that too because it's it would just be very depressing because divorces divorces are not comfortable to watch Joe going to a therapist would not be fun, and Cameron basically being by herself in Japan, also probably not the most fun thing in the world. No, it really would not. You know, it wasn't a fun thing to watch either, was this dating video that Gordon created that Joni watched. I just watched this and I thought to myself, it hurts to live. So I want to talk about Michelle because I, I think we talked in I think in the last episode the level of confidence that you have to be in yourself as an actor to play kind of a lame character. Imagine the confidence to have to play Michelle and know that Michelle is not Donna. Michelle is not even anywhere close to being Donna, and to have to play that character and kind of be lame. That's that's got to take some gumption, I think. We also we have uh, we have recasted Joni as well. We have. Why don't you tell me about the casting of Joni? Because at this time, 2016, 2017, when this maybe is airing, not so much a big deal. But your expectations for her are, are on the horizons. Look like she's going to be blowing up soon. So Catherine Newton is the person that was cast as Joni, and I think she brings a lot of energy. We can debate whether that's good energy or bad energy in this episode. I think I'm a little warmer to it than you are. But the bottom line is that since this series, she has gone on to play kind of a very similar role uh, on the uh, the very popular HBO show uh, with Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon. And she has also been cast as Cassie Lang in the next Ant-Man movie. She will be playing Cassie Lang, and she will presumably – uh, be a part of the Young Avengers. So this is going to be a very big decade for her. And even recently, she got a lot of acclaim for her role in the movie Freaky. I'm not sure if you've heard of this movie, Kevin, but it's basically, it is uh, the Freaky Friday premise, except on in a horror movie with Vince Vaughn. And I know you're rolling your eyes at Vince Vaughn. The movie's actually very good. Catherine Newton is very good in it. And she is going to be a star. And it's fascinating to watch her just on this show and not really being a star, but knowing what's going to come for her career. It's kind of like watching Brie Larson on United States of Tar. It's just you're kind of seeing them in a role before they become a star. So look out for her. I'm, I'm very excited to see whenever that Ant-Man movie comes out to see her in that as Cassie. I think she'll be great. Yeah, she's she's got a ton of charisma. She's going to be really good. Yeah, but here she's the pain-in-the-ass teenage daughter trying to uh, – annoy. she's being annoying like she serves them – 
like meat lasagna or whatever. And oh, I'm a vegetarian now. And I, is it Michelle's dating video she plays during dinner or is it someone else's? I think it's Michelle's. So do I. And she's trying to get Gordon to let her go to some like unsupervised party, pitting her mom against her, blah, 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 telling her you can do better, just really being a real pain in the ass. And there is a minor moment of redemption the next day where Gordon's having some stiffness resulting from his condition. She helps him up the stairs. I really feel like like you just yeah, you have to do that if you're a kid with your parent. It's not really an act of kindness more than just like it's something you got to do. But yeah, she she did not win it over any support with me in this episode. I do like the fact that she, she does tell her father that he can do better. I think that's actually the moment that sticks out more than her helping him up the stairs. And that's kind of what redeems her character for me to an extent when she says that because she doesn't like Michelle because she doesn't like Michelle, I'm sure. But she also knows the kind of person that her mother is, and she has higher expectations for her father as to who he's dating. So I, I think that's what kind of redeems the character. I think you're right. She does play the bratty daughter that's been on every television and every prestige television show since the beginning of time. But I, I do appreciate the nuance that they add at the end of the episode. See, I read that scene differently. It's like, oh, I don't like Michelle. It's like, yeah, but she probably just hates everybody Joe dates because it's not mom. I mean, maybe we don't really have another example at this point. And I think what's so what I always took away from the way that they portray the two daughters, and I think this will become more clear in the next season, is basically if you think about Joni, she to me is like a young Donna, but she is also very she has also has a lot of Cameron influence on her. So that's the way that I see her character is. I, I could see Donna being that kind of bratty and also have that independent streak of Cameron. So that, that's that's kind of how I see the Joni character. I guess that's that's fair enough. Um, and you, again, have the advantage of maybe seeing more of this than I have. So. I don't really remember a lot of Joni in season four. I have a lot more memories of Haley from season four, but I don't want to talk about Haley until we've watched season four. Yeah, she, Haley's not really in much of season three at all. There's like a couple moments of her in like two episodes, but that's really about it. But yeah, it's a lot of Joni in season three. We will I, see a lot more of her in season four. I just didn't see like anything wrong with Michelle or anything for her to say like you can do better. You know what I mean? I mean, I think it's the idea that she, he is dating someone that he is that is her is his in, in his employee. Yeah, in his employee. It's a, it's like the low hanging fruit kind of thing. Okay, fair enough. All right, now we'll get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. Because Donna calls Joe and is asking if he's going to go to Comdex to see and see Cameron there. Because if he is, there's a memo he wants her to present to Cameron. And he says he can't help her, but Donna faxes him anyways. Cameron is still married to Tom and living in Japan. Uh, looks way different. She now has long brown hair. She's wearing an outfit that the old Cameron wouldn't wear. It's her first time back in the U.S. in four years, which she celebrates by eating a, a tried-and-true bean burrito. And she's there because she now works for Atari and is signing copies of her new game, Space Bike 4. Joe says hi to her. They catch up. Uh, the program Photoshop gets name-dropped. I love that they reminisce over Comdex 83 from the end of Season 1, because the guys whose hotel they stole are still doing presentations of this really bad printer. Um, and so as they're they're sitting and they're playing this game that involves like grabbing lighters off the ground, Cameron brings up Ryan and says Joe should not blame himself for what happens and encouraged him to begin working again so he can once again create change. So I guess Joe's kind of taken his sabbatical, uh, just taking time off. Maybe he got some sort of settlement from McMillan Utility 
or whatever, or he has all this money from Gordon now from that part of the deal, so he doesn't have to worry about working, but Cameron wants Joe to work again. Um, I guess time kind of softens wounds or whatever, or she's starting to see that Joe is a creative, and, and it's better for him to be working and bringing stuff into the environment than just him sitting on the benches. I also think that there is something about leaving the United States and going to a foreign country and and spending a lot of your time there that I think uh, gives you perspective. I know that you know I wasn't gone for four years, but just leaving the United States and being in China and this place for a year, I think it really can shake up your perspective in positive ways about relationships with other people and just with how you feel about life in in some cases because you're you're living in a completely new place and having to to adjust to all these things and I've never identified with a character more than when Cameron comes back and the first thing that she eats is a is a bean burrito like it's the most basic of things but uh, a bean burrito would not be very easy to find in a foreign country because a lot of foreign countries don't do Mexican food as well as the United States does so I certainly I, I felt Cameron in a big way in that moment, and certainly since 1986, I'm sure that you can get a lot of a very similar food. Like when I lived in China, KFC, McDonald's, they were there, but like to sit down and get a really good burger or a really good pizza, like those are two bit two things that I had a lot of trouble with. So I certainly felt Cameron in that moment, and yeah, I think time heals all wounds and. To an extent, I think with Cameron and Joe especially, there are some there's some extra feelings there. There's a romantic connection. They do have these similar personalities. And I think, you know, after four years away, I could see why Cameron and Joe would have softened toward each other. And Joe very clearly also has a different perspective on life as well after everything that happened with Ryan. And presumably, he had to get some amount of mental help. I don't know what that would involve, but very clearly he has had to work through his own issues with Ryan and he legitimately feels bad about it. And I think that's totally understandable. I don't know if he is directly responsible for what happened, but you can certainly understand why he feels the way that he does. Most definitely. I think that's very natural when especially someone commits suicide. We were wondering, did I play a role in this? Could I have done more? All this other stuff I think are very natural things to feel. And because he was an employee of Joe's and it happened in Joe's house and he woke up to the FBI and all this other stuff, it probably takes a huge mental toll on Joe. And you could see that it's it's something that still bugs him and maybe his penances leaving the tech industry or whatever. And I think it's very kind of him for Cameron to give those words to him to make maybe make him reconsider or make him feel better, uh, if nothing else. So. It was a very, very touching moment for Cameron to say those words. I think he was hoping for somebody to say to him. I also do love that they brought the brothers back, and they look exactly the same <laughs> as they did in Comdex 86 or 83. Love that. Maybe, what a maybe great some more moment. facial hair. Maybe a little bit, but I love that they did a callback like that. Just a great moment. Yeah, and it's and it's like this fun moment that they can reminisce over and share from the from the good old days. And Joe and Cameron are just having like a total blast. They're at a hotel suite party. They're dancing, having drinks, whatever, when Donna ambushes Cameron. She wants to fix whatever happened to Mutiny, but Cameron says she's not interested and leaves the party uh, and takes Joe with her. And then Joe tells Cameron that, hey, you know, Donna asked me to talk to her, but I declined. I didn't even read what's faxed to me. Like, this is not what this is about. 
and they're enjoying champagne on a very real hotel rooftop in Vegas. I don't know what it is about the scene, but like the CG like really stuck out to me. It just wasn't well done. Joe tells Cameron he only came to Comstock to see her and they end up fornicating. Shock. Uh, The next morning, Cameron tells Donna that working with her was the most fun I ever had in my life. Donna's sorry she never called her. And Cameron asks Donna what her idea is for them. And we don't hear her, but we do see Joe returning home and finally looking at Donna's proposal, the World Wide Web. So when Joe and Cameron were at Comstock, when they started fornicating, did it become Comstock? This is what happens when you're two and a half hours into a podcast, right? Thank you, everybody, for listening to episode three. (laughs) There will not be an episode four. (laughs) Good God. This episode is so great, and I love that the proposal – and we see the World Wide Web, and it's like uh, a holy shit moment that the characters are not aware of, but that we as as participants of the World Wide Web are, of course, very aware of. And I I appreciate the fact that that after – after some fornicating that Cameron has the perspective of, you know, maybe getting some forgiveness since she might have to get some forgiveness for herself since she is an adulterer now. But yeah, I love the fact that we have this huge time jump and now we are almost in a completely new situation and it feels a, it feels like a bit of a refresh, a bit of a restart. And now we are potentially going to have Cameron, Joe and Donna working together and, uh, and Gordon will be there as well. Yes, and that – oh, by the way, episode nine was named NIM, which stands for Network Installation Manager, and the final episode, episode 10, is NEXT with a lowercase e. So like you said, we have Joe, Donna, and Gordon all meeting up at the old mutiny building to discuss the World Wide Web, and Cameron shows a blast with Tom alongside her. There's a great scene where they're all discussing and disagreeing about the World Wide Web is or could be, and Donna gets the sense Cameron isn't as into the idea as she was in Vegas, and Tom has a very awkward interaction with Joe. He's – Definitely very uh, weary of Joe being involved, knowing what's uh, with Cameron's past. And, well, I guess what we saw in the last episode, he's very right to feel that way. What the weird thing is to me, like, I would think Tom seems like a very perceptive individual. And in this episode, he does not seem as perceptive. I don't know whether it's the years in Japan, if it's the jet lag or what. But Tom comes off like a little bit of a different character here, much more antagonistic, which I guess they almost have to do. But I don't know. It's it's just very strange to me. The Tom of previous episodes does not jive with the one that I see in this one. And you don't think that just Joe being in the room and seeing the way he interacts with Cameron is like enough of an explanation? I mean, I think that that is to an extent, but I think it just seems like Tom would have a better sense of what what is going on, and he just doesn't seem to. And the way that he just becomes openly combative with Joe about this, it just – it doesn't seem – it doesn't seem within character for Tom. Yeah, and and that's what happens next is he does get combative over the idea of the World Wide Web being this open source thing, and he uses Macmillan Utilities as an example as to why it's a bad idea. And when Cameron comes to the conclusion that, you know, hey, what we're looking at here is kind of a mess, her and Tom leave, and she goes and visits Bosworth, who is retired, living with Diane, and he's cleaned up a boat that they have in the driveway, not a gold boat, unfortunately. Boz then convinces Cameron, like, look, if Donna's idea resulted in all of you coming back together after all this time, you especially coming from Japan, then obviously there's something here and maybe you should continue pursuing it. So once again, Boz being the voice of reason for Cameron, love their interactions together. Just such great on-screen chemistry, the two of them. This episode and episode seven, I go back and forth about which one I like more. 
probably episode seven is because it's so I think it's much more substantial. But what I love about episode ten is that you finally get Joe, Donna, Gordon, and Cameron in the same room together for the first time in what's felt like ages. And I mean, when these four are in the same room together, this this show really hums. And it's it's great to watch. Like I could have almost watched an entire episode with just the four of them in that room together, and I think it would have worked out perfectly fine. But I do love the fact that Cameron is once again going to Boss for advice. Like they're kind of playing the hits, but I think it's a hit that works. Like their relationship just works. And I love that we do get to catch up with Boz and he seems to be happily retired. I also love that that Gordon talks to Donna and that they seem to have a decent relationship with each other. It kind of gets hinted at in episode nine as well. There's still some awkwardness between the two um, about, you know, Gordon mentions that he wants to set someone up uh, with Donna and she eventually accepts and it creates some conflict. But I love the fact that they still get along and it's not like they're a hated couple. And he even volunteers to step away from the situation which I think is notable given what happens later in the episode, that Gordon is willing to step aside uh, if it means avoiding some of the awkwardness uh, with Donna also being involved. So I just love the fact that these four are in a room together and it, it feels like you're you're kind of reuniting the Avengers again. So yeah, this episode is good just for, just for that reason. Well, that's kind of the next thing I was going to talk about with, because it kind of seems like when Donna comes over and she's, there to just pick up Haley's retainer she left behind. She ends up staying for a while and they have drinks and stuff and their conversation makes you lead to believe like, well, maybe they're just going to go upstairs and fuck. It seems like it's like that conversation to be like, well, why don't we just get it out of our systems? And then Gordon turns to like, well, I have a friend I can set you up with. And she seems a little disappointed by this. And then the next day when she accepts taking the phone number from his coworker, like Gordon is conflicted about this. So I don't know that, especially when you've been married for as long as I have, you have kids and stuff, you're ever going to be fully and totally over maybe them pursuing somebody else, especially if you're the one kind of as the intermediary setting them up. But it, you can definitely tell, like there's, like you said, there's something there. They're at least cordial and they're and they're fine. But I think there's like maybe this. Oh, maybe we can still have something here, and like they're each kind of missing their moments. We get Joe writing out the code for the CERN web browser on a whiteboard and says they can build something bigger. Donna, Cameron, and Gordon are all really excited by the possibilities, but Tom, quote, doesn't see it. And he asks Cameron to leave with him, but she remains seated. And Joe tells Tom, you know, let's cut the BS. We know your issue isn't with this. It's with me. And Tom says, yep, I don't want Cameron ending up like Ryan. And that cuts Joe deep. And he says, it's a good thing the wives don't get a vote. And this gets Tom to lunge at him. They have a like a physical altercation on the floor, and the floor breaks open underneath them with Joe falling through the floor into the basement, landing on top of the what the big uh, the big servers. And fortunately, it only resulted in a broken right wrist. But at the hospital, Gordon tells Joe that their personal history could destroy this project before it even starts. And he's right. If this is something where he and Tom can't at least reconcile, then Cameron's going to be out, or he's going to be out, or something's going to happen here. But I think in a lot of ways there's there's this thing about if two people hate each other, they just need to fight and they can get out of their system. And I think that's – it's whatever Tom needed to move on, He this is what needed to happen I guess. It doesn't make it any more right. But uh, yeah, tense, tense stuff. 
Gordon is also setting up what happens with Donna and Cameron in the next scene. But I have to be honest, when they started fighting, it was the funniest thing in the world because it was a terrible, terrible fight. These are two guys who just don't know how to fight. And it was a little bit slappy. And then Joe crashes through the floor and I I was laughing my ass off. I don't know about you, but for some reason it was just funny to me that he that like it's gotten to this point where Joe's just crashing through the floor and that that moment when uh, he comes out of the room and just shows his wrist. I also laughed at that too because he just seems more annoyed than actually hurt. Yeah, well, and I'm glad that the fight sucked because they're programmers. They're not trained fighters or anything, so it makes sense they'd have a really weak... I don't know. I could see Joe get learning some Krav Maga or whatever the equivalent is in 1987 or 86. I mean, he's eating Chinese food all the time. He very clearly has an affinity for Asian culture. I don't know. I think you're being a little reductive here. <laughs> I'm always being reductive, Kevin Ford. Fair enough. And yeah, the, the floor breaking is like, well, at least it's an old building, so you can... I, I think it, that was realistic for that to happen and probably been yeah, – they, they also set it up because they had Joe step on that particular uh, – on that floor and actually it did go up a little bit. So right. they actually set it up quite well. And what – I mean that building seems like it's been uninhabited probably for a long time, probably dilapidated, no upkeep. So yeah, it checks out. Tom actually confronts Cameron about what happens at Comdex and she does not come clean. And Cameron then tells Donna, you know, she makes some comment about, oh, Joe always seems to be an issue for any of our our endeavors. And Donna agrees to leave Joe behind if that's what Cameron wants. So Tom flies to Texas to see his family, leaving Cameron in California to continue with these World Wide Web discussions. And Tom admits to Cameron he read her emails because he couldn't get Joe out of his head and apologizes for not trusting her fully. And there's this whole thing about we need to be trustful, trustful and straightforward and all this stuff. All the while, this uh, affair is lingering in the air that Cameron's not coming clean about it. Similar to Donna never coming clean about the abortion, at least that we don't see when uh, on the plane at the end of season two, Gordon's talking about them starting fresh and truly being able to to be in love and stuff. Uh, Tom also says to Joey, sorry for the attack. And Joe says he too was out of line. And Cameron is set to meet him in Texas after she's done in California. So yeah, there's never a good thing to see when when trust or major trust issues like Tom and Cameron have. Who the heck knows what happened in Japan? But uh, Joe was in Tom's head bad. Yeah, for sure, and it's easy to see why. I mean, I think there is very clearly a romantic connection. They're former partners, and they they very. They, I, I think Tom at least sees that they do have similar personalities. So it's easy to see why Tom would be a little bit concerned about this, but. I'm glad that they are not dealing with this in this episode, and if it is going to be dealt with, it'll be dealt with in season four, because again, I think the focus has to come back to Cameron and Donna, and that's, again, that's the important part of this series now, is their relationship. Now, let's face it, Lee Pace is hot. I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't blame Tom for being jealous. Especially with a beard, man. Like, I totally see it. So the last thing we see, and this is when Cameron and Donna really break apart again, because Cameron tells Donna she can't work with her. As when Donna made that comment about Joe, she was reminded how easily Donna is willing to toss people aside. And Donna says all she wanted to do is help Cameron, but but she says, you know what, whatever. Cameron can take this project, and she leaves the building. She cries in her car for a little bit, but then she makes a decision to fly to Switzerland and meet with CERN herself. While downstairs, Joe is telling Gordon that he's in love with Cameron. And this is Cameron enters the room, having not heard this. And the three of them are huddled around a computer in the basement as a new morning by Bob Dylan plays in the background. 
So you've got Joe and Gordon and Cameron working on this, Tom flying to Texas, and I guess Donna is racing to CERN to see if she can beat them to this worldwide web pitch. And it's amazing because if you think about how the first episode ended, it ended with these three in the same room, and now we are ending season three with these three people in the same room, and the dynamics between the four have just completely shifted and changed, and that's that's pretty remarkable that we kind of end up ultimately in the same place with these three characters working together, and Donna Donna's on the outside looking in for a completely different reason than in episode one. Like realistically, Donna might be the most successful of the four of them, but she's not happy because she's isolated herself from all three of these characters at this point. And who knows what the future is going to hold, but at this point, we're kind of right back where we started for very different reasons now, with Joe being in love with Cameron and being willing to admit it to himself and to Gordon. I love Gordon's face because Gordon has like a, oh, brother, here we go <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <laughs> like, why, like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> but it's like, even though they don't, they fight and there's tons of tension, Gordon, Cameron, and Joe, what they ultimately realize is that they are the best when they're working together on something. That's seemingly what they have figured out at the end of this episode, that if it's the three of them, they're they're the ones that are going to make this work, and it's not going to be Donna's involvement that does. Absolutely, and I think Donna kind of reminds me of throwback to Gorn at the end of season one where he's – in the company by himself and yeah he's rich and they have these successful computers but he is not happy at all and like you said because it's lonely at the top like yes cardiff was successful and he had these projects but that's not what he wanted it's not worth it for him to have lost his friendships and uh his the respect of his co-workers who all got fired and and all those friendships and stuff and now donna's a success in in her firm but she doesn't have her husband she doesn't have cameron and who knows what her and Boz even have. Like, yes, he's, he's with Diane, but what does that say for their personal relationship when she did what she did to Cameron and all this other stuff? It makes me really interested to see where we're going to land in season four, the final season of uh, Hall and Catch Fire. But overall thoughts on season three. Season one is like a throat clearing. Season two is like a warm up. Season three is where the show really sings. I think that is that is my overall assessment. I think. Look, I love I love a lot of aspects of the first two seasons, but it's it's not even close. This is by far the best season of the show so far. I would go to say this is one of my favorite seasons of television period just for episodes 7 and 10 alone. I think this I think that what they are able to do and what they are able to accomplish it is uh it's pretty wild. I think some there is some clunkiness with the timeline and whatnot, but I really love the fact that we are ending in a place where they're talking about the internet and they're talking about things that are all the more relevant to us today and creating communication between each other. And I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, how that plays out in season four again. And for you, I'm sure you're excited to see this uh, for the first time, but I love the personal dynamics. The thing that is so impressive to me about this show is we have talked about with Veronica Mars, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, so much of the drama is who is going to live or die. And while that can be really compelling, I almost think it's more of a challenge to make us invest in characters when we like 
Donna is not going to come up in episode number one of season four and just shoot Cameron in the face. That's not something that's going to happen. And and Joe and Gordon are not going to kill each other. But the drama is so much in about these personal relationships. And I think that is almost a higher bar to cross. And I think that they are able to uh, get that get to that point very impressively. Yeah, although I will say there's two predictions I have for season four. I was going to ask if you had any predictions for season four. I do, and I feel like I had more than I'm than I can think of right now. But I think the two I can think of that are that are most succinct. One is a sad one. I don't think Gordon's going to make it with us out of season four. I don't even know like the timeline jumps or whatever. But when I I almost said this when you said the jump ahead to him seeing Phantom Menace in 1999. Don't know that that Gordon's uh, illness is going to let him make it. I think because it was somewhat more downplayed his illness in season three than even season two, but he has the big t- the couple big tumbles, and then they kept teasing or, or they mentioned him living upstairs in the bedroom by himself one too many times for me to be like that is not insignificant. But I think the second thing I can see happening is. Bosworth legally adopting Cameron as his daughter. She doesn't have a, her father in her life anymore. Bosworth has become kind of her surrogate dad, even if she won't admit it. And I think if they legally adopt her in at some point, even though they're older, I think that would be just like a super cute, cool moment for that to happen. So those are my two semi-bold predictions for season four. Do you have anything to say about Donna or Joe? I think... Donna will still be very successful. I don't think her and Gordon get back together. I don't know that she's going to end up being happy in the end. I think she might have some success, like she might win the World Wide Web contract over our hero, so to speak. But I don't think it's going to bring her the happiness that she wants. I don't think it's going to bring her the is it is it wants. wild given our season one conversation that Donna's now the villain of the show? It blows my mind, to be totally honest with you. And then I don't know what to make of Joe. I there is part of me that wants Joe and Cameron to to get together. I don't I don't think Cameron and Tom make it no matter what. And I think Yo Yo becomes the president of the United States. I think that would be how would how great would that ending be? Uh, I don't even know that he is uh, of of the correct age or even um, if he was born in the United States and eligible to be president, but. Uh, in this universe, if the rules do not fit Yo-Yo, they will alter them because he is so wonderful. Yes. Uh, well, we'll have a multiverse. And in this multiverse, Yo-Yo is the president. As far as my thoughts on season three, I think it produces the best moments of the show so far. Some of the strongest episodes so far. The time jump stuff, especially between 86 to 90 feels like it's like, ah, you're cheating a little bit. You're taking a bit of a shortcut to get to where you need to. But I understand there's probably real life reasons. And and when you laid out what a season would look like from us bridging the gap between those years, it does sound pretty depressing. So I guess I can forgive it. Probably the best season. And we didn't talk about enough, but I do think moving from Texas to California also gave it a bit of a, a fresh coat of paint. So I think that helped its longevity as well. And I am really looking forward to see what happens in season four. I can't believe we're already almost done with this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where when you have 10 episodes, four seasons, 
you're going to breeze by it. I mean, it felt like we were just indulging in the Breaking Bad world for an entire year. And now we're four months and out with, uh, with Halt and Catch Fire. But I'm very, very excited to discuss season four. Uh, season four has what I think is one of the best episodes of television that has ever been made. Well, I'm looking forward to talking that. I'm very much looking forward to you taking over hosting duties on that episode. I'm tired. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, these 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 have gone longer than our Breaking Bad podcast, which I'm almost surprised about. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. But yes, I will be taking over hosting duties for season four, and uh, after this, we're we are going to take on a lighter load. We're not going to take a break, but uh, we've got a lighter load coming up in the summer, and I'm very excited for that. Yeah, well, we there, we there's some possibilities. We don't know the order yet, and all that, so we're not going to. Maybe by next episode, maybe by episode four, we'll have that figured out. We'll let you know. But in the meantime, you could follow me on Twitter at K413. You follow Jerome on Twitter at JeromeC1985. I've got my Floop of the Pig podcast about Adventure Time. Maybe another Distant Lance has come out since then. But if not, there's 82 episodes in the archives for you to enjoy, along with my Lost podcast for Broadcast Dev and mine and Jerome's Breaking Bad stuff that we did breaking bad better call Saul, everything we'll reconvene and do season six whenever that hits the air but uh that's what you can listen to from my side of things on this website jerome what about yourself uh you can follow me at jerome c 1985 uh you can go and listen to pantheon plus in february we did uh reviews of bong joon ho movies in march we did pantheon limited edition where we discussed such classics kevin ford as birds of prey the old guard uh, a little bit of WandaVision and New Mutants, which is a movie that actually exists and I will have watched and seen by the time this podcast comes out. I'm sorry. Uh, we will be discussing uh, Hio Miyazaki in April, May, and the first week of June before we uh, we take a break. I am not taking a break with Kevin um, because we do once a month. So logistically, it's pretty easy, pretty light load. It keeps me a little bit busy during the summer. But I do want to take a break from just the weekly grind of having to put a podcast out. So I will be taking a slight break, but not a full break. You can't quit me. I understand. Uh, Yeah, Kevin Ford. Apparently I can't. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jerome, for getting on this three-hour podcast with me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to it. And I'm sorry, but our princess is in another castle. Well, Kevin, all I'm going to say is if Pro Wrestling Ponderings ended the same way that Mutiny did, I would no doubt be the Cameron in the scenario. But I would not need to be voted out. I would have quit because just like Mutiny, Pro Wrestling does not have a right future.